everyone, welcome to the latest episode of Jumpcast, the podcast from the award-winning team behind Jumpcut Online. My name is Sarah Buttery and I am your host for today and I am joined by my fabulous, magical and wonderful co-host Barry Levitt. How are you doing today? I am fantastic. This is the moment I think we've we've all been waiting for. The listeners, us, yep. our pets, <laughs> the people just walking on the street, they're like, when's that Beauty and the Beast podcast coming? Uh, well, uh, we're here, and it's now. It's all true. I've had people stopping me in the streets at a <laughs> safe distance, of course. I can barely just... even walk anymore without being accosted <laughs> with these demands. <laughs> we need it. Where is it? Um, well, we're here. I'm. I'm very excited. Uh, we're gonna. We're gonna jump right on into it. No pre waffle because we've got an awful lot to say, as you can probably imagine. Um, so you will know the story of Beauty and the Beast, but I will read out the plot synopsis anyway. A prince cursed to spend his days as a hideous monster sets out to regain his humanity by earning a young woman's love. That is the story. Barry, you are armed with the facts, with the history, with all the stuff we need to do. We t- there. Let me try that again. With all the stuff we need to know. <laughs> See, I'm so excited. I can't even talk. Um, so <laughs> take it away. Alrighty. Well. Um, Disney has been doing pretty well at this point. Um, coming back from the horrors of the early 1980s, they bounced back with uh, a great math detective. Oliver and Company did very well. Obviously, Little Mermaid was a humongous success. Um, and Rescuers Down Under wasn't, but it kind of allowed them to work a lot with computer animation and really step up their game in that sense. So even though it wasn't a huge success um, financially, or not a success at all financially, uh, what it allowed them to do was really take a step forward in, in animation and basically, you know, continue that each film being another step forward in, in where they're going. And they're kind of at a point where they're ready to try and hit a real home run. Uh, that's something that's both commercially and critically acclaimed while pushing the boundaries of animation. And I think we all know whether they pull that off um, or not. Uh, but the story or the idea to do an adaptation of Beauty and the Beast came from Jeffrey Katzenberg and Peter Schneider. Although I should say it came long before that, um, before it was renewed, I should say, in, in the late 80s. Because uh, Walt Disney himself had considered adapting it, uh, but they could never really get that story right. And they always struggled with with adapting it and how they would adapt it uh, to make it an entertaining uh, animated film. And also in 1946, uh, La Belle et la Bête, uh, the Jean Cocteau version, came out, and that was a huge success. And if you have not seen it, um, pause this podcast, watch it, and come right back, because it is uh, beyond spectacular, um, and perhaps the very best version of, of Beauty and the Beast. Um, although this is a very serious contender, there are hundreds in, of adaptations, whether it's in, in film, TV, literature. It is an extremely well-known uh, fairy tale, but they couldn't get it right when when Walt was around. But Katzenberg and Schneider thought that they they would have a good they would have a crack at it at the very least. Um, so they asked Richard Williams, who was an animator on Who Framed Roger Rabbit, which was a big success for the studio, um, to direct, and he declined because uh, he was working on something else. But he suggested his friend Richard Purdham in London, England. So they sent Don Hahn, who was the producer, uh, to London with Andreas Deha and Glenn Keane. And, other, and a group of other animators to start work on the film, uh, which was set to be a non-musical. So there, are, not only was it not going to be a not, not going to be a musical, but they were actually kind of doing all the work in London. And, and Glenn, Clean, get, bleh, Glenn Keane uh, <laughs> said that, you know, he was saying they brought his family over and they had a lovely place in Primrose Hill, which in the 80s is probably still quite expensive, but not as unfathomably expensive as that would be now. Um, 
And, you know, he was able to kind of go to the London Zoo all the time. And he kind of got the inspiration for the wolves and Beauty and the Beast from there. And he was, um, as we'll talk about, the supervising animator for the Beast. So obviously, looking at all those animals really helped him uh, bring the Beast to life as well. Um, so they were set to work and they had a group going for months. And they really thought they had something interesting going. Uh, so they kind of brought the first 20 minutes, obviously not animated, but just kind of storyboarded out. They had it planned and, and they had animation going and they were they were working on it for probably up to a year. Uh, and they had sent it to Katzenberg and Schneider, uh, who viewed it and, you know, kind of reported back to the producer, Don Hahn, who came back to the team saying they had good news and bad news. Uh, the bad news was that it was terrible and they were going to scrap the entire thing and redo it. Uh, but the, the good news, <laughs> um, was that they were going to do uh, another research trip, this time to the Loire Valley in France. Um, and that kind of rejuvenated efforts and, and gave them inspiration in, in architecture and all of that, which really helped uh, fuel the film before they returned to the U.S. to make it again, take two. Um, and it's kind of a Disney tradition to do this. And by a tradition, tradition I mean, it, it's happened once before. Uh, Walt scrapped the first six months of work on Pinocchio because he didn't think it was working. And obviously that was a great decision as Pinocchio has very much uh, stood the test of time. It's actually celebrating its 80th anniversary this year. So there you go. Um, and it took things. So, so Disney decided, obviously, because they hated what they had, uh, to take things into a totally new direction. Uh, so they brought in Howard Ashman and Alan Menken, who we spoke about a lot uh with the little mermaid uh and they began to musicalize the film and, and turn the film into what would eventually be like a, a full-blown broadway musical uh they also brought in kirk wise and gary truesdale who were very new um at the time they had just worked on a ride at epcot called cranium command um and were kind of just thrown into this and, and they were kind of amazed that this was happening they couldn't really believe it and they were um called the co-directors of the film um, although Jeffrey Katzenberg was careful to call them the quote-unquote acting directors uh, for the first six months, and they were very, you know, they were kept under a pretty close watch, and because obviously this was the first time they had done anything like this, and this was going to be a major film for them, uh, but they saw something in them uh, in terms of what they could do story-wise, and their energy really helped um, excite people and, and rejuvenate the efforts that were going on, especially after all their work had been scrapped. Um, so after six months, acting was lifted, and, and they were the official uh, co-directors of the film. Um, and yeah, there was this, you know, people were getting excited, and they, they thought that they might have something here. However, they only had two years to do it. And we've kind of talked about previously, uh, now, once we're into the 90s, you know, they're releasing films every year, and there's a much tighter time constraint. But if you go back to the Golden Age, they worked on Bambi for eight years. They worked on some of these films story-wise, trying to develop the stories for over multiple decades. I mean, these things would really incubate and take a, a tremendous amount of time. Uh, so to create something like this in, in two years is not easy to do. Um, but Linda Wolverton wrote the screenplay, um, and Roger Allers, who was a story supervisor, um, they often clashed, and it's interesting, neither of them were necessarily wrong, but in animation, it's such a collaborative process, and, you know, so many people working to develop the story, they never really had screenplays looking back when Walt Disney was around, and in fact, you'd look at, at the, the credits, and you'd never see screenplay by, or written by, you'd see story by, in, in a group of, you know, 10, 20 names, and it's a really collaborative process when you're storyboarding, and, and starting to animate, you're constantly kind of changing the way things are, and, re and redrawing, and coming up with new lines, and, and all sorts of things, so it's a really collaborative process to go from that 
uh, to the last few films where only a you know a hand people a handful or in this case one person uh, is credited as the quote unquote screenwriter uh, when Disney hadn't really had screenplays at all before this was was a challenge. Um, so they would regularly clash. However, um, it wasn't necessarily a negative thing. It was just Jim trying to battle. You know, she would have written a scene and then she would come in and they would basically change the entire scene. And obviously as a writer, that's, that's not your goal is to have your whole story changed. Um, but Peter Schneider kind of stepped in and had basically put them in the exact same room uh, and they would do all their work very in very close proximity together. And, and it ended up working quite well and, and they ended up getting along uh, well and they worked alongside Brenda Chapman who was working on story alongside uh, a group of other people and her her screenplay wasn't that different in in the end you know it, it, it she was still very involved in the story process after writing the screenplay so her her vision is very much intact well not intact necessarily but very much still there um, but one of their biggest debates working on Beauty and the Beast was whose story is it is it is it the beauty story or the beast story um, and the person who had a big breakthrough on this was, was the wonderful Howard Ashman, um, who kind of said that the Beast is the one who goes through this great emotional change, and therefore it's, it's his story. Um, and the, the kind of way to foreground this was Ashman created this prologue that starts the film um, about how the Beast became um, the Beast. Uh, and that kind of foregrounds it as his universe, even though after that, you know, we go in into Bell, and it is about both of them. But at its heart, I think Ashman wanted to make this story um, about the Beast. And Ashman had a huge, had a, had a lot of creative control in this film and a lot of creative influence, as he did in The Little Mermaid. Um, and one of the big things he wanted to bring forth was casting this film. The first time they did this was going to New York in Broadway and casting the film there. Because um, they really wanted to have people who were very theatrical, um, very musically gifted, and they really wanted this. They really wanted to push the musical element of this like they never had before. I mean, the, don't get me wrong, The Little Mermaid is a full-blown musical picture, um, but this is really, you know, that next little leap over to like full-on getting a full cast of like Broadway performers to bring this to life. Uh, so we have Paige O'Hara as Belle, who won the role. Over 500 different Broadway actresses were auditioned, and they found something in her. And obviously, her voice is really quite something, and it's and it's she does a fantastic job as Belle. Um, Angela Lansbury is Mrs. Potts, and that's something Howard Ashman had decided on before they even cast it. He said, you know, Mrs. Potts could be a lovely British lady, and he thought that Angela Lansbury would be perfect for the role. Um, and that was a no-brainer, and imagine saying no to a Disney film. Uh, <laughs> so she was brought on and obviously sings Beauty and the Beast, among other things. Um, Robbie Benson was the Beast. Jerry Orbach was Lumiere, and now... We, we go through here when we go through these looking at cast and kind of being surprised, like particularly um, the writer, James Mangold, we, we did not see coming as one of the screenwriters of um, Oliver and Company. And let me tell you, when I found out that Jerry Orbach was Lumiere, who uh, was on a show called Law and Order for 13 years, uh, that really blew my mind. I had no idea this man could sing, uh, but he was a, a, a big Broadway actor in the, in the 60s and, and is extraordinary as Lumiere. That, that one is probably the most mind-blowing moment I've personally had in uh, discovering who is behind the voices. Uh, they had Richard White as Gaston and a number of other Broadway performers. Um, and Ashman was kind of considered the guardian angel of the film, uh, not only so essential to the music, but really the, the story and, and structure of it as well. And... He tragically passed away um, in 1991 and never saw the finished version of the film. 
Um, but he really did produce some of the most incredible work at the very end of his life. And most people working on the film really had no idea he was ill. He kind of kept going until really the very end. Uh, and the film at the very end of the credits ends with a, a beautiful dedication uh, to our friend Howard, who gave a mermaid her voice and a beast his soul. We will be forever grateful. And Howard Ashman passed away um, at 41 in 1991. Uh, and I'm not going to talk about him anymore because I'll cry. So moving swiftly on to animators. Uh, this new generation of artists had you know, been practicing their craft for a number of films now. And you can really see, as we talked about, you know, in each film, they're getting better and better. Um, and, a, and a number of key animators, again, are involved in really bringing these amazing characters to life. Um, Andreas Deja was the supervising animator for Gaston. Uh, Glenn Keane was the supervising animator for Beast. Uh, James Baxter and Mark Henn worked on Belle. Nick Ranieri on Lumiere. Will Finn on Cogsworth. Chris Wall on LeFou, uh, David Prigsma on Mrs. Potts and Chip, and Ruben Aquino on Maurice. All names we've probably mentioned before and will be mentioning many more times because these, well, there isn't really a nine old men again, but all of these uh, guys were really um, essential to bringing a lot of the characters we love to life. Um, so they kind of took a different approach in terms of screening this one. They, they, they had a feeling, I think, as they were getting close to the end, that they had something really special brewing. Um, so they decided to, in the marketing department, they decided to bring this film to the New York Film Festival, but the film wasn't finished yet. It was about 70% done. Uh, a, quite a bit of it was animated, but a, num a significant portion of the film was still in, in pencil sketches. Um, so they were nervous that it would kind of be a disaster and people would be like, why on earth am I watching this? However, uh, the response was nothing short of rapturous, and it really kind of reminded people of the amazing and intricate work that goes in to creating um, an animated film, it's kind of, you know, Don Hahn, the producer, kind of described it as a really beautiful handwritten letter that you just can't really replicate in any other medium. Uh, and the film, as we know, and if you don't know, you're about to find out, uh, was a enormous success. Uh, it had a budget of a rather modest $25 million, and it made $145 million domestically, $186 internationally for a total of $331 million. Now that is making your money back if uh, <laughs> a solid investment if there ever was one. And this was also a huge time uh, for merchandising for Disney. Uh, Little Mermaid really blew up the opportunities of merchandising, uh, but Beauty and the Beast really took it to a new level and kind of, obviously Disney had merchandising way back in the very beginning, but this was kind of the new level of, of what marketing was obviously you have disney stores all over the place um and it's really took off in terms of making just even more unfathomable amounts of money for this movie and the studio <laughs> as a whole um it actually won the golden globe for best picture which i i did not know i i i, I just wasn't aware of that it won multiple grammys and got six oscar nominations including best picture uh which was nothing short of momentous uh in the very first film or animated film, I should say, to be nominated for Best Picture at the Oscars, uh, which was not repeated for 18 years, uh, with Up in 2009, and then 2000, or 2010 had Toy Story 3, and I don't think, unless I'm forgetting, there has been another since then. Nope, that was the last one. <laughs> uh, and it won two Oscars um, for Best Song, which is Beauty and the Beast, and it competed against two other Beauty and the Beast films, among a couple others, uh, and mm -hmm. it won Best Score as well. And yeah, so there's a, a bit on, on Beauty and the Beast, and an interesting thing is this was kind of the moment that was so successful for them that Jeffrey Katzenberg wanted to step it up another notch and kind of have 
the studio kind of always working on two films. Uh, so this was, which which happened fairly often in the beginning. You know, we talked about a team working on Bambi while a team would work on Dumbo. So it's not necessarily new. Um, but a lot of animators really look back on this one fondly as this was kind of that last um, one where like every single person that, you know, well, not necessarily because, you know, Ron Clements and John Musker were working on um, Aladdin while this was happening. So, but this was, so not literally everyone, but a huge number of the, the top, top animators and story people at Disney were all, you know, working together because at this point they'd kind of be split into, you know, you'd be doing Aladdin, you'd be doing Lion King, et cetera, et cetera. So this was kind of that almost like last great, although as we know, there are many more great ones, but that last kind of moment where they were all kind of working together. Mm, there is so much to get into uh, talking about this film, but I did just want to say quickly as, as you um mentioned some really nice things about Howard Ashman is that I I watched the documentary on Disney Plus which is called Howard. Um I believe it came out in 2018 and um I wanted I deliberately wanted to watch it kind of at this point so between uh, Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast and it's really really fantastic and made me appreciate this film so much his incredible contribution and I'm going to be bold and say that I don't think the Disney films that we have today would look like they do if it wasn't for the work uh, that he kind of contributed towards in the 90s, which is these incredible songs and just turning these films into musicals in the in the truest sense. And yeah, it's it's a really worthwhile watch um get tissues though i sobbed like a baby when i watched it so um yeah, i i that's what that's the only reason i haven't gone in yet because i i just don't know if i'm ready because like just reading about him gets me emotional mm, and yeah watching like seeing the dedication at the end of the movie almost destroyed mm. me so i'm not sure if i can handle a whole documentary on his life um yeah I, I, I absolutely <laughs> agree and by the way he did um work on a number of songs in aladdin as well mm. uh before he passed away and and tim reich who um largely known i think as a contributor with elton john they worked together a lot um or at least certainly did on um, the lion king uh he kind of stepped in to to finish the the lyrics of a lot of the songs in aladdin but his uh his legacy is definitely still felt i mean little mermaid and particularly beauty and the beast actually maybe on the same level are generally considered two of the most disney uh mm-hmm. disney films for whatever that means well we know what it means we talk about it anyway. <laughs> um but yeah his his impact is He's enormous and interesting, he, you know, learning about how his influence on the story as well. You know, he didn't mm. just write the lyrics of these films. He really shaped the way these films are. You know, we talked about the key scenes he worked on in The Little Mermaid. Uh, and, you know, he, he was very, they were both, I mean, Alan Menken and, and Howard Ashman were both very involved. Oh, well, Menken still is. Um, but, you know, they were very involved in the, the story process because that's how you make the songs so convincing. Is And I think Ashman said something along the lines of, you know, the songs have to come from a place where you've tried to say things with words, mm-hmm. but they're just not working. And the only way you can really express the way you're feeling is is through song. And I think you get that in this very well. And one of the interesting things I kind of picked up on is that there aren't really any, well, there's one solo number, which is Beating the Beast. But for the most part, these are huge, um, like, you know, in, in um, musicals, you call it like the company songs, like everyone is kind of singing. Uh, mm-hmm. Bell, uh, the whole world is singing. Um, <laughs> some even in some a smaller kind of seeming song like something there, a number of them sing. Um, Gaston has a whole group of people singing. It's it's not there aren't really any besides Beating the Beast. There aren't really any solo songs. While Little Mermaid was kind of you know part of your world is solo. 
Poor Unfortunate Souls, Under the Sea, the only one, Les Poissons, the only one that isn't is um, is Kiss the Girl, really. Mm. So it's kind of that next step into like full Broadway. And obviously this was the first one. Uh, Little Mermaid has a Broadway show, but this was the first um, one to have a Broadway show almost immediately after. So you can you can really feel that impact, and obviously that decision to to cast, uh, go to New York and cast Broadway people worked out tremendously well. Mm, yeah, I think I it was perhaps in the Howard documentary or something else that I was reading that they were keen to have um, Broadway singers who could act rather than actors who could sing so they at at this point certainly for a little while anyway i think particularly with beauty and the beast more than any other film in the in the disney renaissance there really is that focus on it feeling like a broadway production and i think you get that in the the massive scale of these ensemble numbers like you were talking about the way the story is structured, the way those songs come about as well. Like it's, you know, they they come about because they that is the only thing the character can do in that moment is the only way they can express their feelings is is through that song. So I think we're, we're kind of naturally heading in the direction of uh, talking about the songs in more detail. And there's a couple that I, I want to kind of go into in like real, real detail. So it's probably going to be quite song heavy chat uh, to start with. But these songs I mean, are iconic. I mean, it makes sense. Uh, <laughs> this, this film is, well, quite literally nothing without its songs because it started as something without songs and they thought it was awful. So they put its songs in and it became a whole lot better. Yeah. An interesting thing I read actually is that the if you add up how much of the film is is sung or is is in songs it's like 25 minutes um and there are only five minutes of the almost 90 minute runtime where no music or you know no score no nothing sung uh is heard so i did not say... know that but i can't say that surprises me because yeah extremely, like i mean as we're saying it's a, it's a very musical film whether it's the score or whether it's the song yeah, yeah, I was going to say to say this film is music heavy is is kind of an understatement, but it it really works and the songs are amazing. So the first one is um is Belle and as we spoke about last week, this is where we start to see those Broadway influences. So this is very much the the I want song of of this film, um particularly when it gets into its um reprise and there's quite a uh, I think it's both Belle and Gaston uh, the songs in this have um like a sort of small reprise as well but yeah it, it's also, I... it comes like immediately after the prologue like they waste no time yeah right into it and establishing it immediately as a, a big broadway musical yeah absolutely and it's like it starts off in that sort of quiet way as well that you can almost see it unfolding on stage where your lead character comes out and sings the first bit and then suddenly all these people appear from from the window shutters and they're walking down the street and it it goes from being what looks like a quiet and deserted town to then being you know the start of another busy bustling day and that obviously fits in with the with the lyrics and and what bell is singing about and there's a real playfulness to the lyrics as well and there's some really great moments like i just it cracks me up every time but the woman who is just like it's saying about how she needs six eggs and I won't do my impression, but she's just like, she's... I need yeah. <laughs> That's it. She just sounds like she is so desperate for these eggs and it's so funny and it's so wonderful to have these moments of incredible comedy in what is otherwise this kind of 
big epic ensemble opening number and it's it just really speaks to the the quality of of Ashman's songwriting and how his collaboration with Alan Menken just works so so beautifully and it's a great song and there's there's also quite a bit of foreshadowing in the lyrics in this song. I don't know if you picked up on any of those or well, the the book the book she likes. Yes. Is like the whole film. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to try and find I, lo- I love that. I'm going to try and um, find while, the quote. While you but, find yeah. that, I'll I'll mention something. So you um they kind of pitch this well, they kind of like pitch each song and you know, you play them in front of the story people and see how it how it plays and when they when they did this song, um Roger Allers, who's the the story supervisor was kind of saying how um, it just lacked this like this something, and and Howard um, at that moment was like, well, Alan will play it, and then you can tell us what it should be then, kind of in like, a, let's see what you got. Um, so he was really on the spot, but he kind of threw in these ideas about you know people shouting about bread and, and all of that. So that actually came from from Roger Allers contributing um, that idea where they kind of threw in the I need six eggs and, and all this stuff. So again, <laughs> you know, pointing out how you know even though there's two people assigned to the music, there's animation and, and really filmmaking as a whole is it's so collaborative. Um, but especially in animation, um, in the way that Disney operates, it's so just a nice, a nice little touch there that it's not always just, you know, you say like one person writes it or or one, a few people animate it. You know, there's so many people involved in in shuffling ideas back and forth, and it's really just a, an a, an amazing uh, experience, I would imagine, to be involved in making one of these things. It's, it's such a, you know, they would fight a lot, but all the fights are kind of really exciting, and they're all kind of happy to have these fights because they're all so passionate about the project. Mm. Um, and then he, so basically he, he sang those ideas and, and Ashman was like, okay, yeah, we'll do that. Sounds good. <laughs> and, and they did it. Yeah. I'm sorry. I was, uh, I was diving into my notes cause there were, uh, three specific things that I wanted to mention about the, <laughs> the lyrics in this song. Um, we have a, a, uh, perhaps a reference to fun and fancy free or just <laughs> a coincidence. Um, because, uh, one of the books that Belle is reading or the one she is returning to the library is about yes. like a, an ogre and a beanstalk. So I was yeah, like, oh, I, I picked up on that too. I was like, oh no. <laughs> oh no. Yeah. That's what my notes said as well. Um, and then when she is talking to the person in the bookshop, um, uh, one of the lines she says is a prince in disguise. So I noted that down because that is obviously, uh, the beast, you know? Yep. He is the prince in disguise, and then the bit I think you were thinking of is when she's by the fountain and at fountain, and she sings, "Oh, isn't this amazing? It's my favorite part because you'll see here's where she meets Prince Charming, but she won't discover that it's him till chapter three." Um, and I love that, like particularly when you're sort of thinking about like the the three act structure of a film, she doesn't see like the prince mm-hmm. in his final form until kind of the the third act, the final act, or or chapter three. So. I really, I really like that. I like that there's so much depth uh, in these lyrics, and like you said, that it just it feels so collaborative in terms of the songwriting, the script, the story, everything. And I, I don't know if it was just me that spotted it this time around as well, but in previous films, we've one of the things we've criticised is that sometimes in the the scenes where there's a lot of characters, like the bigger crowd scenes not much effort will necessarily go into animating the kind of the background characters or the people just strolling around and sometimes they don't even have faces or features they're just shapes and and blobs kind of strolling around in the background 
But what's so great about this opening number is that it feels like every single character in this town has a different face, has a different look, they're a different size, they're different heights, they have personality. And I was so struck by that and like how just incredible the work is on the animation of this well, all of those it, characters it's amazing to think that five years ago they did great mouse detective in which i mean obviously the budgets were different and they they couldn't do it but like all of those backgrounds are like painted and like you don't really mm. see anyone move in the background and you go five years later which is not a lot of time mm. um and everyone feels like kind of alive um, yeah and the the other lyric in this when, when she's talking to the bookkeeper you know she says it's my favorite far off places daring sword fights magic yes. spells a prince in disguise which i mean Daring sword fight. Well, I mean, she, he, the Gaston and, and Beast—they don't use swords, but it's basically a sword fight. Um, <laughs> and basically, everything in there is is exactly what happens uh, throughout mm. the, the film, which is which is really fun. Yeah, <laughs> there's a lot of fun to be had um, in the in the lyrics of that, and I particularly love the bit where she. Um, it's in the reprise where she is then kind of like alone and up in the hills and uh, the note that I made is that it's very Sound of Music. <laughs> like yeah. she even kind Sound of, of does that little never. spin. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, it's absolutely, I, I would put many dollars or pounds on the fact that <laughs> it is it is heavily, that scene in, is absolutely ripped out of the pages or the film of uh, Sound mm. of Music. Um, yeah. And another another thing that I, I particularly like about Belle is very similar to, to Part of Your World is that, you know, um, there's a very clear line, uh, or or subtle, depending on who you are or how gay you are, um, of <laughs> <laughs> of you know queer coding almost you know this this desire to to want something more than a small town um, for mm. a lot of of queer youth you know you who are from small towns you kind of imagine the world as you know everyone like you or if there are people like you even um, are in bustling you know metropolitan areas where they where they kind of go to to look for each other because you know in your small town you may be the only one or it feels at least like you're the only one um so Mm. this desire very much like ariel has uh in part of your world to kind of you know be where the people are is is very similar in this and her desire to uh for more and and to be somewhere where people understand her um Mm. you know the whole village is like she's very odd we don't we don't get her um her looks may have no parallel but we don't get her uh, she reads books how disgusting um and you know in the city people read books um even women um so it's it's very like and you know obviously these these aren't these aren't an accident um howard ashman was was gay and, and a proud gay man um his his partner um accepted the award uh, at the oscars with um alan menken because obviously he had passed away by that point um and it's you know that that those kind of ideas are, are central to these and probably one of the many reasons uh, queer people identify with a lot of Disney things in general, but particularly uh, these movies. Mm, yeah, actually, that um, is comes up again in the. Sorry, I'm going to keep mentioning the Howard documentary, but it's so good. Um, in uh, the Mob song, which is uh, the song mm-hmm. that uh, mm-hmm. Gaston mm-hmm. and the villagers sing as they're about to go off and and kill the beast, and this would not be one of the songs that prior to this i would have been like oh that is an absolute banger but let me tell you it's an absolute banger this song is, i've been i've been listening to it all week again it's on that villains playlist that i was talking about on the little mermaid episode yeah. <laughs> so that and uh um poor unfortunate souls have been in the heavy rotation in the in uh buttery towers this week but um yeah there's a a lyric in that and again i've got them i've got them in front of me so i i was poised and ready for this moment um, where the the mob are, uh, the, what they're saying is, we don't like what we don't understand. In fact, yep. it scares us. 
And a lot of people have kind of read read into this, or it might have even been something that Howard said himself, in that obviously he was he was battling AIDS and at the time this was it was something that was not understood, you know, in the queer community or the wider community. It was kind of seen as this mysterious mysterious illness that seemed to be yeah not f- not only that but like something that is like utterly horrible and like yeah. you can't even go near someone who has it or you'll catch it mm, um, which obviously yeah. is just objectively false but people you know didn't have the access to that information or they would willfully ignore it mm. um and there's a lot of of cinema in general in the in the 80s as in 90s that is kind of viewed as you know a, a parable for AIDS and I think that song certainly is um, yeah, so that's a that's a that's a good point to bring up. Mm, there's um, I think that there's a lot of um, religious uh imagery and stuff in that um, in that song as well. Uh, I'm struggling to find the lyric. It doesn't matter too much. Um, but yeah, there's basically just go and read the lyrics to, <laughs> to that um to that song after you've finished uh listening to us because um it's it's really great, and yeah, I I there's so much depth to these to these songs that i think there are some that aren't quite as as deep as that i think when you get into the you know be our guest territory and and gaston there's a lot of fun and frivolity in those uh lyrics in those songs sorry but the the wordplay is still very very clever and i think uh, the song gaston has some of my favorite lyrics as well like i just absolutely i love the lyric about that he's roughly the size of a barge because he used to eat how many dozen eggs in order to get large or something like that it's just when so he, was lad, he ate four dozen eggs yeah. every morning to help him get large but now that he's grown he eats five dozen eggs and he's roughly <laughs> large. i did not i did not need to read the lyrics i fully believe you <laughs> i know i know uh, that they are ingrained he's especially good at expectorating which i really enjoy Oh, just to just to get the just to get words like that into a Disney song is so great to me. I just I just love, I love them. They they work great as songs, and they just work so well as storytelling devices as well. We learn everything we need to know about Gaston through this song. Belle, the character, is is set up through the song of the same name as well, and. I think that it's interesting that both of those characters get their their kind of named song. They're the the first two songs that we that we hear. So it's obviously setting up this kind of dynamic there is between them. Obviously, we see that it is very very one sided, but we it, it's not kind of heavy on apart from the the prologue. It's not really heavy on exposition this film, and we learn everything we need to know about these characters through the songs and. Mm-hmm they have to be effective therefore to get the to get the story across yeah and and i mean they really there's only so many superlatives you can use i (laughs) i I would maintain that still that that little mermaid has the strongest selection if you look at every single song um but i would be hard-pressed to find a better second place than uh than beating the beast and everything if anything it's probably like one b like it's they're they're both Mm. so good there was not a bad song in in either of them i don't know if i even have a weakest song in this i used to think it's something there but now i think something there is kind of spectacular mm. um so i refuse to say it's the worst one and i don't think there is a bad one um and i nope. think this this one is probably the most um influential I, I i was thinking listening to these songs that like i've kind of you know they've kind of taken for example 
like something there very much gives me vibes of like I won't say from Hercules. Mm. Um, the mob song is gives me Savages vibes from Pocahontas. Yep. Um, and be our guest is the absolute temp like boilerplate uh, blueprint <laughs> for friend like me in Aladdin. Um, mm. Down to like the choreography almost feels very similar as well. Um, and you know you, you can really feel this film in particular really paving kind of the way. This is where like the Renaissance I think really comes into full swing. Um, and it really paves the way for the the rest of the films that come after it, and they all feel one way or another, um, whether it's thematically or or stylistically or song wise influenced by Beauty and the Beast. And and I mean, when you make that much money and that, if your film is that successful, of course you want to kind of um, not base everything off of um, Beauty and the Beast because the other films are, are very different in, in scope and scale and all that but you know you, you kind of want to follow a certain template and, and a lot of the films in the renaissance do just that hmm. yeah I, I we might have mentioned it on the Little Mermaid episode actually but worth mentioning again that you you very much see the pattern particularly in the renaissance films with you get the I want number you usually get the villain song you get the sidekick song, um, the romantic song. I think in this case we get two romantic songs because something there and yeah. Beauty and the Beast are both that kind of that you know number. I think the one that people remember is Beauty and the Beast, um, and I guess two villain songs as well. Yeah, I think you could count the the mob song and Gaston yeah, as definitely. as a villain song. Um, although interestingly, the <laughs> the Gaston's song is kind of framed like an I want song, but for him. Um, mm-hmm. it's well, not G- Gaston, like we, like we were saying with with Eric, is like his only motivation is to get married. Yeah, <laughs> they're both they're both very like classic Disney princesses, if you will. Mm. Um, and it's almost kind of like the re- reverse, where like the the princesses in these films, like Ariel and um and Belle, are kind of more like a, a typical prince. Uh, and there was this kind of shift into uh you know making these princesses more instead of just reacting to everything and kind of going with the flow to be much more proactive and kind of taking mm. their own stories and their own desires i i think cinderella is a, is a is an example of someone who's surprisingly proactive yeah. um, but definitely more reactive i would say that than than these two because that's what that story demands um but you can definitely feel that shift and it's almost like the the um like eric and gaston obviously one is a prince and one's a, a full on villain um but, you know, really, when it, you break down what they want, and it's it's marriage, that's it. And mm. Gaston is, you know, Prince Eric is whoever he falls in love with. But but Gaston's motivation is entirely the fact that he wants to marry Belle. Everything he does is motivated by that um, and, and nothing else. He cares about absolutely not a single other thing. He has no interest except marrying Belle and decorating things with antlers. Um, <laughs> and, you know, that's, that's his, his whole thing. Um, I don't know if we want to move on yet to Gaston. Um, <laughs> but I wanted if 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 we did, I wanted to just mention that um, the although I'm sure we'll keep mentioning the songs because they they kind of come up in the story and they're they're so good. Mm-hmm. Um, and everyone everyone is here to listen to us talk about the songs <laughs> while, while we talk about them. Um, but there there was supposed to be another song uh, in this film, and perhaps mm-hmm. um, you have heard it because if you've watched the um, the DVD or Blu-ray recently, it, it is included. Or you have the, you have the option, I believe, to watch the original or watch the um, basically in two thousand two they did an IMAX version. Uh, they've also done a three D release, which I haven't seen, but that would be interesting. Um, they released it a num- re-released it a number of times, as have many of the Renaissance films because they were huge successes. Um, but in the two thousand two IMAX release, 
uh, they wanted to include a song called Human Again, which was written by uh, by Ashman and Mencken. Um, and it was never animated, um, and they ended up cutting it uh, because they were concerned about pacing issues and kind of replacing it with something there instead, um, which I think works for the story. Although I think Human Again is a, is a lovely song, and it, mm. it's really great, and I'm, I'm glad it's, it's now in. But it's interesting because it's the, I believe, although it may come up in the future, the only example where they've re-released um, a film, including an entire new, entirely new scene that they fully animated for that re-release. Um, so it's not in the 1991 version, but it is in the 2002 and some subsequent versions. Um, and it works really well. I can't remember. I didn't watch that version this time. I watched the, the original 91, so I can't remember where it is in the story. Um, but it is obviously somewhere along the lines of them thinking that Belle and Beast are, are going to succeed and, and break the curse because it's the whole song about how um, Lumiere and, and Co. are very excited to be human again. Um, and that's what the song is about. Um but they actually had not every single one, but a lot of the core animators from Beauty and the Beast in the '90s re kind of come back and 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 draw that scene and and bring it to life again. Um, so it's definitely worth checking out. Um, whether you want to watch that version with that song, it's about you know five six minutes longer than the the original one because um, it has that song. Um, but you know you can you can check it out on on YouTube or whatever if if you want to have a listen. It's it's also a lovely song. It's probably the weakest, which I so I can see why they cut it, but mm. it's it's still better than a lot of the other Disney songs. Yeah, it's funny how like even the what could be considered as the weakest song in this is like <laughs> still, still a, so good. <laughs> a hell of a lot better than some other some other yeah. Disney songs. But or I just think... songs in general, it's really good. Yeah, it's true. I think we'll probably cover Be Our Guest and Beauty and the Beast when we're talking about those. I think when we're talking about the animation, we'll probably mention those. So um, I did just want to say quickly that it was something that we, uh, well, it was a question that we were asked, actually, uh, shout out to Daisy, who asked us about The Little Mermaid, um, why there were differences between the lyrics on the soundtrack and the lyrics in the film. And we sort of came to an answer or, or our best guess anyway. And we're like, we'll keep an eye on this uh, to see if it happens again. Well, <laughs> can confirm it happens in uh, Beauty and the Beast. So on the soundtrack in uh, Gaston, there's a bit towards the end of the song where LeFou is given is, you know, the big kind of closing moments and he tries to spell out Gaston's name and he fumbles it because he can't spell. And this is actually a pretty good gag. Um, but in the film, uh, it's it's not there. They bought it back for the the remake. Um, we'll get to that. Um, but yeah, interesting. The live action one, we mean, not the yes, not the, not yes, the sorry, yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. No, I just just to just to be super clear. But yeah, no, they they certainly did. Well, they made the joke less funny, um, which is kind of a theme of that. But we'll get. To that. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's it's weird, and I'm I'm guessing again. I don't know. But I'm guessing it was kind of a, a pacing issue to you know because it it is a fairly lengthy gag at the end of mm, that song, and they probably yeah. just wanted to keep it the film a bit more concise and and flowing. And I'm guessing why that that wasn't animated and not put into the film. Mm. Um, but it, it is interesting that there are you know there are differences in the soundtrack and the actual film, which which isn't completely abnormal. It happens regularly, um, but no one really tells you why. But mm. I would guess for this particular one, and again, it is only a guess that it was cut because just just to just to trim it down and and keep it a bit cheaper and 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 faster paced and better paced. Mm. Which we I'm will... not sure if it's right because it's a really I think it's really funny. Um, yeah, but I get it. Yeah, it's a nice character moment for LeFou as well. I think even though obviously it's it's making him seem like even more of an idiot than what we've seen already, it's a 
funny moment for that character. Um, but yeah, I, I I see why they cut these things out. But we'll certainly be uh, eagle-eyed or eagle-eared, I should say, listening out uh, for these things. Yeah. They, the they were definitely over budget as it was. So mm. it wouldn't surprise me if, if they just tried to cut wherever they could and, and not animating that bit was cheap. Yeah, actually, <laughs> that brings us very neatly into kind of talking about the um, animation. And there is one, count it, one piece of recycled animation, noticeably oh, yeah. recycled animation in this film. Um, and it comes right at the end. And <laughs> it's very funny because I noticed it because it stuck out like a sore thumb. And then when I was doing my research, I learned that um, the scene where uh, Beast, who is now a prince, um, and Belle are dancing at the end, it is uh, Aurora and Prince Philip's dance from Sleeping Beauty. It sure is. And I noticed it because they are the only characters moving and yep. the rest of the characters are completely static. And bear yep. in mind, we've had the beautiful ballroom scene that we're going to spend lots of time talking about. Um, it's it's noticeable for for being recycled, for not kind of looking as tip-top as the rest of the film looks. And um, it basically, by that point, they were running out of time and money. So that's why that was yep, recycled. That is, that, that is exactly why. Although I, I must say, I think it works and I think it looks... It looks noticeably different, but it, yeah. to me, it, it, it feels like a, a kind of loving throwback to Sleeping Beauty. Mm, um, and, mm. I, and I appreciated that. I will say, though, the transition and cut from them on the balcony where he kind of like picks her up and it swings almost into this ballroom scene is spectacular mm. um yeah, and they can reuse whatever they want if they make <laughs> that transition as beautiful as they do go for it you know if robin hood had gorgeous transitions like that we probably wouldn't have complained as much um, wow it did not um <laughs> probably not we probably would have complained just as much um yeah, so. but you know sh- shout out to um the editors because that is that was really mm. um I, I, that really stuck out to me but yeah no that that was a very um uh it is quite noticeable because like you know like you said everyone in that ballroom scene does not move <laughs> not not a millimeter uh mm. and they're basically like static almost like shadow people almost mm. um which is wild considering so much of the, so much of this film there's a little bit of that uh at the beginning of the mob song um but generally like the film is so alive and teeming with people they're everywhere mm. and they're all kind of doing their own thing which is you know, really the, the first time they've kind of taken it to that level where, like, it feels like every layer of this film is is going. Yeah. Um, and it's it's really impressive. So it is kind of jarring, but it feels like um, a salute almost to the, the princess stories and the fairy tales. And I, I enjoy it, but it is it does stick out like a sore thumb. You, you mm. can't you can't deny it. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. But it's I think that's really the only bit where I was. I, I didn't think it looked bad, but it just didn't look as good as the rest of it looks. And that's partly just because the rest of it looks so freaking good. The animation in this film, Barry, is stunning. Like from the start, just I was so struck by the colour in the prologue and they use the where they use the stained glass windows and it's so visually striking. And as well, it's it's um Disney kind of going back to their like real like fairy tale roots with this proper animated prologue and it's mm-hmm. a different way of kind of presenting that story we usually sort of see the the storybook story opening yeah. but this sort of is is a slightly different version and just how gorgeous all of the colors are in in this film and yeah there's certainly a couple of of really sort of 
big landmark moments in this in this film um that yeah just i i wrote in my notes actually that the the ballroom scene everyone knows it you've all seen it it's beautiful and blue and yellow and gold um i think that's probably the most beautiful thing disney have ever animated i oh wow wonder if that will hold up through the rest of the films we need to watch but right at this point i'm like this and bambi i'm like are the two probably the two most beautiful films to look at. Um, maybe sleeping beauty as well because we all know i love that film um i i but yeah. yeah um that's that's interesting i also agree that the the well i i don't agree that it's the most beautiful thing they've ever done i think it's definitely um up there although i will say this is the first one of the 30 we're on 30 now i don't think we said that um that george watched with me and he said why does it look so weird um so perhaps we're so blinded by our love for this film (laughs) everyone thinks i think i but i think that's partially because it's kind of the first super obvious use of cgi in the movie yeah um where they do it is used throughout it is there um particularly like motion you can kind of see um in bell when she's kind of um on the um i guess it's like a caravan wagon type thing before Mm -hmm. she jumps off um that's you know they use cgi to to bring a lot of it to life but this is the first kind of moment and it does it does stick out it is noticeable you can tell um Mm. that it that it's cgi i i think it looks exquisite um but actually he said you know when they when lumiere kind of like dims the lights and it gets darker he was like oh that's much better so like when it (laughs) like at the end when they walk out and it's kind of like you can still see all the cgi but it's at night it feels i guess more uh believable so maybe not everyone agrees that uh it is the most beautiful. I, I think it's stunning, and I think it works really well, and it kind of is a culmination of, of all the CGI stuff we've seen. I still think my favorite CGI used to date is the clock tower scene uh, <laughs> in, in Great Mouth Detective, which I refuse to stop talking about. Um, <laughs> but as a, as a whole, in terms of like the from, from top to bottom, I, I think it's a better looking scene than that, for sure. Um, mm. I, 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 feel like my, I feel like the best use of animation so far is still Bambi, and I, I don't see that changing. Um, and Sleeping Beauty looks remarkable as well. But in terms of like individual scenes, this is definitely one of the finest. Yeah, it's hard. It's hard to make comparisons with the with the golden era films because I and I'm finding that as well as I <laughs> sent you my uh top my change in my top uh, films list. And for like a day, Bambi was still above Beauty and the Beast, and I I today moved it round the other way around so Beauty and the Beast is now number one but it's it's so hard to sort of compare them because they are using such different technology and you know Bambi just uh, they didn't have that stuff available to them at the time so it it, it just flat out didn't exist computer animation was not a thing yeah so it, it it's Bambi looks stunning and it's even more kind of awe inspiring because you're like someone painted this and they're still hand-drawn elements in in the disney film still but i think it is now kind of getting into that into that stage where it is becoming more obvious the the use of cgi and i certainly agree that it is obvious in in that scene which is why you know for the longest time i thought this was the first film that did use that and and was was proved wrong in the several episodes previous uh to this but yeah it's i i I just I think it's the emotion of the scene as well, and the song is so lovely. It, it's hard to beat a scene with this song. Mm. Um, also, with some of the best costume design ever in a Disney film. Yes. Um, that dress and the Beast outfit are 
Um, I know we use the word iconic a lot, but like nothing short of iconic. They're some of the most memorable costumes in film history, let alone Disney history. Um, most people on the planet who watch movies probably know like that image of them dancing together. Um, it's it's definitely one of the most memorable images of the entire decade of the '90s. Um, so yeah, I can I can I can see it. I, it's not something I would like argue against someone's opinion of that being one of the great. You know, it's not like they're saying it's not like you're saying that a scene from Sword in the Stone is the most beautiful thing or Robin Hood is the most beautiful <laughs> thing. I mean, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna fight you on it. I I wouldn't personally agree, but I do think it's an exquisite moment. Yeah. Um, because it, it's it's one of the best examples probably of like every element coming together. Mm. Um, you know, the sound, the color, the costumes, the 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 effects is just a really wonderful combination of all those things, and it really is the the most like emotionally resonant moment I think of the whole movie. Mm. Yeah, I think I wanted to ask actually. I think I know the answer, but apart from the prologue songs we joked about before, that it's they just sing the name of the character and say how beautiful they are. <laughs> Is this the first film that has the title of the film as like a major song in it? I can't think of another example. <laughs> I believe so. Like mm. there, there are there are others. Like Alice in Wonderland has an Alice in Wonderland song, but in terms of, um, yeah, in terms of the way it's used, especially an Oscar-winning like major major song, mm. um, yes, at least to this point, I don't think there's another one though. That's an interesting point. Something, not... something we'll keep an eye on as we go. Um, yeah. Like, there's a song called Frozen Heart at the beginning of Frozen, but obviously that doesn't have... That's, like, the one no one remembers. Um, <laughs> although it's not that bad. Um, yeah. No, I don't, think, I don't think so. I think that's a good question. I think the answer is no. I think this is the only one. Um, again, like, some of them have... Obviously, Winnie the Pooh has, you know, Winnie the Pooh. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> it's a, a lovely song, but it doesn't have you know, that emotional resonance of, like, two people finally, like, falling in love with each other. Mm, That's, like, yeah. the emotion. None of them are, like, none of the other ones are, like, the emotional linchpin of the movie. Yeah, it absolutely works in the film's favour as well, because I can't look at the side of my Blu-ray case or read anything about this film without, like, singing it to that <laughs> tune. So it's yeah. certainly memorable and um, is a, a great song as well. And... I was reading something, I hope that the, this is true and isn't the internet lying to me, but that um, Angela Lansbury wasn't sure about whether she should sing that song. She didn't think that she had the right voice for it or something like that, but they were like, you know, come in, sing it, and, and we'll see. And I think she did it in one take, and that was the take they ended up using in the film because they were like, it's I have, perfect. I have heard that too. I, again, I don't know if that's... That sounds right. That sounds like one of those magical moments that they mm. would absolutely have. This film yeah. is full of magic. It wouldn't surprise me. Yeah, she's oh, she's such a delight. I really enjoy. I was watching like a behind the scenes thing where they were recording um, "Be Our Guest," and that was when I made the connection between um, Jerry Orbach and Lumiere as well. Where I was like, "Oh my gosh, it's the like the dad from Dirty Dancing <laughs> was my <laughs> was my yeah. exact uh, exact moment of uh, realizing who he was." And it's so funny to see those faces that are so familiar. Like Angela Lansbury is like a beloved national treasure and i know that she is the voice of mrs potts but like seeing her and jerry orbach like interacting with each other and singing be our guest is so lovely i'm really mm -hmm. now just obsessed with seeing seeing the voice actors and seeing them 
act as the characters and sing as the characters. I think this is something that Pat Carroll has started in <laughs> Little it's, Mermaid. It's, but... it's funny you. It's funny you say that because I my favorite thing when I was younger about and kind of still when I buy like animated like at the time it was DVDs now it's Blu-rays like I would always like rush the special features and hope that there was like a um like a feature ad of some sort where you see the people mm. voicing them. It was always my favorite thing. So we're very much unsurprisingly the exact same on that. <laughs> but yeah I, I i love i just love seeing because voice acting is such a, a fascinating thing where like it's like anyone can do it but not everyone can do it particularly well and it, it takes a, a remarkable kind of ability to do it convincingly mm. um, and it, it's amazing to kind of see these people so it's it's, a, it's again having them be broadway stars where you know your, your voice has to be very theatrical because you have to kind of extend it to the whole the whole um theater can hear you mm. um it's it's kind of an it's an amazing amazing thing to watch and and they really this has one of the strongest i don't know how you can compare voice cast and say which one is the best overall voice cast but this is this is definitely one of the best yeah for sure i think it's also the last one where the characters uh do both the speaking and singing voices i might be wrong um, um. Well, there are there are other, like in in Frozen, they all they're all the same. But do, or do you mean the Renaissance yeah. specifically? Maybe specifically in the Renaissance. I, that was another thing I was reading that they're beyond this point. I think at least for a little while, anyway, they weren't sort of casting like Broadway singers who could act. They were sort of like, okay, we need you know the bigger names and the 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 faces that people recognize. Some I of know, which could sing, I know and some that's couldn't. The case in um Pocahontas think it's definitely the case in hunchback of notre dame yeah and Mulan. at least at least esmeralda um but i think i don't think it's always like all the characters i think it's usually mm. like one or two that have um a different voice but that is something we will definitely keep an eye on um as we go yeah i think this i think the thing that i was reading if i can get this right was that this is the last one where all of the characters are yeah. at least for a little while anyway it'll come it'll come back and uh, then yeah. we can uh... <laughs> I'll hopefully remember to point out when the, the the next one is. It probably is Frozen, actually. Now I think about it. Well, t- no, um, t- Tangled is definitely as well. Oh uh, um, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh no, um, Princess and the I... Frog. They all the all the characters yeah. in that were. Well, this theory was. Well, this is like the time I said in Little Mermaid that the the story or the logic was really strong, and then I spent <laughs> the next two hours destroying it. Um, so don't worry. <laughs> Yeah, but we'll keep, we'll keep we'll keep an eye on the Renaissance because I know there are definitely examples, especially Hunchback of Notre Dame and and Mulan, where they definitely don't. Yeah, and we we always talk about the cast and we always talk about the songs, so it will definitely be something that we that we pick up on. Um, yeah. I think we're, yeah, we're still because I'm talking about animation. Um, I want to talk about be our guest because I think that this is again with the ballroom scene. I think the iconic moment that everyone recognizes and uh what i wrote in my notes is that be our guest is a full-on production and i underlined production um (laughs) just i just the way that this number is orchestrated is just so fantastic i love the lumiere kind of using a matchstick as a cane he's really kind of giving this full-on like broadway number and it's so much fun it's so visually decadent was the was one of the things i uh, thought and of describing so it true and and it's it is such a you know it's a broadway number but it's kind of like taking the possibilities of, of broadway and really amplifying them through animation because obviously this is not something 
that you can do to this degree, although they do it in um, the Broadway number. And I did actually, when I was a kid, I, I saw this um, in New York and it was amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, but obviously you, you can't compare um, it to animation because with animation, you can quite literally do anything. If you mm-hmm. can draw it, you can make it. And obviously on, on Broadway, you can't have literal plates sink. <laughs> uh, it just it, it that, that is not a thing that happens in real life yet who knows where the world is going um this, this has been quite the year um but as as far as we know at this point in time in 2020 it is not um in the realm of even like the realm of possibility um mm. so they really kind of i think this is the one where they do it the most because in you know gaston you could do on stage um yeah in um whatchamacallit uh, bell you could do on stage the mob song, all of the other ones, you could conceivably, to some degree, you know, do on stage. Obviously, it, it but the the way everything moves and the way it's choreographed is so special to animation. I think that's why it works so well. And it might be my, I don't even know if I have a favorite Beauty and the Beast song. <laughs> I don't even know. I still don't even know if I have a favorite Little Mermaid song. I mean, Part of Your World and, and Poor Unfortunate Souls are like really the 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 two of my favorite like all time songs, let alone Disney songs. Um, mm. So it's kind of hard to pick one over the other. Um, but the same kind of thing like this, like I, I think Be Our Guest is the one I have the most fun with. I don't yeah. know if that means it's my favorite or not. They're all, what you don't need, you don't need a favorite when they're all so good. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's it's, I think that's what's really special about it is that it, it can't be. They obviously do it on Broadway, but it, it, like the way it's done here just can't be replicated anywhere else. Mm. Yeah, it really it has that kind of old school feeling as well of reminding me of old musicals where they would quite often have that fantasy ballet type sequence where the rules no longer applied and they could do really strange things with the with the imagery and not really sort of follow conventional the conventional rules of music numbers which usually had to have at least some degree of logic and this kind of feels like that you know we see obviously the the house is full of these you know anthropomorphic you know crockery cutlery you know <laughs> items of furniture but just in this moment having this kind of cascading tower of you know forks doing like a chorus line or something it's just so just the fact that people sat and thought and had these ideas <laughs> yeah and put them to film for us to enjoy it's 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 so incredible it's this sequence is so lavish and so wonderful and it has been often parodied but never bettered uh, in my opinion agreed mm. um I, I will just add as a as a note there is at walt disney world in florida um quite new the last time i went was 2014 and it was like brand spanking or 2015 maybe and it was like brand spanking new then um was the is the be our guest restaurant which they oh. now have and let me tell you it is amazing also for dessert you can have the gray stuff um <laughs> which is great um it is a very cool place and when we eventually go on our world tour of disney parks celebrating the end of this which i mean probably will never happen because that's that's (laughs) funny um but you know one day i can't wait to go back there because that is a a very it just reminds me of of that restaurant and it's it's a lot of fun in the parks and it's very like there's a room that is like the exact same as the ballroom and it's it's it is amazing that sounds incredible and it it is (laughs) let me tell you it's also one that like you have to book like months in advance and like we couldn't book it but then like when i arrived in disney they were like there's an opening do you want it i was like yes (laughs) yes take my money i don't care how much it it was a it was a it was a spectacular it was a spectacular time (laughs) well we are we are potentially uh well you know 
events of the world uh we'll we'll like to see what's happening at the time but uh post uh coronavirus and post podcast uh planning a little trip to disneyland paris so oh, it's yes, n- not gonna be quite on the same scale but they no, do but have that, well that one's guaranteed whether it happens in whether we will just have to wait for the world to be reasonable and then we'll... yeah <laughs> that, <laughs> exactly. that, that's happening there's no no doubt about that one but yeah maybe Florida, they'll open a VR guest restaurant in paris by then who knows fingers that crossed would be great otherwise they just, they just <laughs> opened um they just opened a beating the beast ride um in tokyo like <gasps> less than two months ago like end of september they opened it okay well if, if anyone who works at a disney park has connections with disney parks or you know just Especially any the tokyo one i would love to go there <laughs> <laughs> any connections uh disney we're willing to wait until the world is less on fire and if you would like to pay for us to go to <laughs> <laughs> to any Disneyland, we will gladly uh, accept that very generous gift. <laughs> hey, look, don't ask, don't get. That's uh, that's. We'll, we will make a wonderful series of podcasts all about it for you. We absolutely will do that. Yeah. <laughs> um. Okay. Shall we? Shall we move on to talking about villains? I think we, we usually spend a bit of time talking about villains. So. Uh... Yeah, he's pretty cool. <laughs> he is. Um. Yeah. Of course, the absolutely iconic uh, Gaston is. The villain in this, um, he's very much a, he's he's a, a a nasty character, but I don't think he's not as evil as some characters we've seen. He's very vain, and very conceited, but he's kind of a love to hate villain, as he is super charismatic, and I think at least in the beginning, he's just very kind of full of himself and forward. So he's we don't like him obviously because we are you know aligned with with bell and and she is sort of dismisses him and and doesn't when you, you know. when you say we i assume you're not talking about us specifically because we always love villains <laughs> well yeah we we the normal love the people villains. in the world yeah yeah yeah, yeah. the I, well I adjusted normal. ones yeah. sure <laughs> <laughs> i think the most striking thing i was thinking about in terms of gaston is this is kind of the first well not the very first Um, But one of the few examples of a villain who is generally loved um, Mm. by the populace. We have Radigan, who has um, a very devoted group of people who like him. Um, The Queen of Hearts, I think, is more like a fear-based kind of thing. (laughs) Um, Same as... There was someone... Oh, Captain Hook, who, Mm. like, has... You know, there's... there's, Basically, there's Captain Hook, um, Radigan, and... Gaston, who kind of have songs about them and how lovely they are. Mm. Um, but it feels like the Radigan one and the Captain Hook one come more out of fear over Captain Hook or and or Radigan killing those people unless they sing those songs. Mm. Um, while the Gaston number and indeed the people of the village seem to adore him and really um, admire and and respect him. Did yeah. You, did you feel Did you feel that way as well? I did. Yeah. I think that. He is quite physically imposing, so I think yeah. that people just sort of naturally bow to him as being the kind of peak specimen of the of the village, and they're they're quite happy to sing his praises and and whatever. It's it's unclear like what his standing is in the village. I mean, he's he's a a hunter clearly, but it just seems that his job is just to be like generally beloved by everyone in mm. the village and. Actually, there's those who who take his side over Bell's, and it's set up in Bell uh, the opening song as well. That that, as you said as well, the town the townspeople think she's pretty strange and abnormal because she has 
ideas and you know big plans and she reads you know heaven forbid and her her father as well is is on the outskirts of society as well because he's quite eccentric he's an advent um an inventor and that sort of thing in in this world uh, in this village is not sort of seen as as good they're sort of you know pushed aside slightly and uh, gaston who is this very macho very chauvinistic character is really kind of lauded and and praised by everyone around him you know they sing up a whole song about how great he is so it's yeah it's it's interesting and in many ways i think that cements the idea that gaston is not he's not really he is villainous but he's not really the villain and i don't think until the i think as the film progresses and it, certainly as it comes to like the final showdown between him and beast definitely he becomes uh, like fully unhinged yeah 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 but you, I, you could argue i'm not trying to defend gaston even though i love him but you could we argue all, well that... it's okay we all, i think we've defended every single villain that's true to some degree. <laughs> okay no apologies then um it, that I think is kind of as well like the pressure of the townspeople around him. You know the the um, torch and pitchforks brigade arrives and and you know feeling bloodthirsty and they want to go and 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 get the beast or whatever. And perhaps it's being sort of riled up by the people around him that brings out that anger in him and obviously motivated by wanting to have Belle as his wife as well. And this is his you know romantic rival, if you will, but. Yeah, he's he's not sort of as outright evil as a lot of the villains are that we've seen so far. Definitely. Um, yeah, because like, like for example, the one we just had um, was nothing but evil. I already mm. McLeach. I almost forgot his name. Um, <laughs> and like that was his only characteristic, which made him rather forgettable. And then you have right before that Ursula, who's maybe the very finest of all the Disney villains, who has a lot more dimension. I'm not sure if. Gaston kind of leans a bit in the more one-dimensional aspect. However, um, it's what's his name? Um, I'm trying to think of the the voice actor. Uh, Richard White is mm. so incredible, mm-hmm. and and gives Gaston such like heft and significance, as does um, Akina's animation or um, um, Deha's animation, I should say. Um, really, like this is an amazing character um, that shouldn't really be that amazing like again his only like real desire is to get hitched uh particularly to bell that's kind of like, <laughs> from the very beginning it's very established that's all he wants all of his schemes he's concocting to throw maurice um throw bell's father maurice away um to kill the beast all of it is to get bell there, there mm. he doesn't care about anything else he's he's extremely one-dimensional in that sense um but he really he's he's a lot of he's a lot of fun he's a really fun villain kind of like ursula as well and actually really um i think a real theme of the renaissance villains is that they're often very fun like hades is really fun Mm. um a lot of them are not all of them some of them are just like terrifying but generally speaking a lot of them are are a really good time um and it helps you not necessarily identify with them but it helps you really enjoy when they're around and and gaston i think is perhaps the least frightening Yeah, but I agree. <laughs> he still has like that level of menace to him. And he's not someone you'd want to mess with, but like and he he becomes I think quite frightening at the very end uh when he's kind of like lost it and like totally unhinged and especially in the rain and the the you know, we talked about pathetic fallacy ages ago, but it does a really great job um in the weather mm. kind of signaling this change. Um 
but it, he's he's fascinating and he's he's a lot of fun and it's interesting kind of dealing with the villain that i feel like this is the first time where he's generally and again we talked you know we said he's imposing and maybe threatening to people but this is kind of the first time people love him and like he's almost like a leader in this village like he's the one that leads them all um mm-hmm. all these people who who did not appear to be particularly scary at first but now they're you know hellbent on killing the beast uh and he's the one that gets them there uh, which is interesting because you kind of look at some of the other villains of the past and they're very isolated, um, particularly like Lady Tremaine. She has her steps um, or her daughters, but like nothing else really. And Cruella de Vil is, you know, they have their henchmen almost, but like no one else. Mm-hmm. Uh, Maleficent has her like her like her employers or employees, basically. Um, and, and they don't have like these communities supporting them. You know, this is kind of the first one we've seen where there is a, you know, it's not like a criminal gang that supports this person. It's It's a it's a whole town Mm. yeah that's a good point actually and it's i think another thing as well that makes gaston less threatening particularly in the beginning is the they do an interesting thing with the dynamic um of him and the beast so in the beginning gaston is not really set up as the villain he is you know like you said vain and conceited and all of these things but the person who is set up as the villain in the beginning is the beast and he gets you know he gets the villain entrance there's shadows there's thunder there's lightning there's rain all of it (laughs) and and we're led to believe he is something to fear and he certainly does do villainous things in the beginning and as the switch kind of happens as the beast starts to mellow a bit and start is becoming closer to being human again and, and bell has brought that side out of him that they kind of switch and gaston then becomes more like the beast and in their kind of final showdown as well it's it's hard it becomes harder like those lines are more blurred of like the distinction between like man and beast and in in that moment you would certainly argue that the one who is acting more like a beast or more like an animal um is gaston and i think that's a really interesting idea that the the film plays with and Obviously, when it does, we get the switch with Beast earlier than that because we sort of see him be a lot more human and nicer and we warm to him because of the characters around him and because of his relationship with Belle. But yeah, I just I thought that was interesting in in how both how it introduces those characters and how it kind of does that like switch towards the end. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it it is very much that that Beast is the bad one. Mm. Obviously, there is. They take a lot of time to develop him and and kind of give him um, reasons to not be, and he certainly changes from really the the, the villain all the way to like the hero. Mm. Um, but it it is it's definitely a, a a bait and switch that they uh, they pull in and pull off quite well. I must say. Mm. Yeah, definitely. I don't know when will be a good time to talk about it, but I'm going to mention it now that the work that Glenn Keane does on the animation of the Beast is so good. um just a a genuine master like one of the very finest um animators to ever work is still working um over the moon is on netflix it's his latest film that he directed Mm. um he worked on virtually all of the renaissance films and and then some um and he's a name will be used saying a lot because he's just so very good um Mm. and you know all a lot of these guys learned directly from the nine old men you know um 
Eric Larson and John Lounsbury kind of set up almost like a, not like a foundation, but like a, you know, a very strong sense of mentorship and, and led a lot of these guys who joined in the 70s and in, in, in well, the 70s um, and kind of set them on their way and, and really told them what they knew and kind of imparted that wisdom. And you can, you can feel it. Like you can, mm. these, these characters are, are so alive. And I have watched quite a few versions of, of Beauty and the Beast animated or not. And let me tell you, no others. The only one that is as good in terms of the way Beast looked is the 1946 um, version that Jean Cocteau did, uh, which, which was unsurprisingly fairly heavy inspiration for this version of the Beast. But the Beast often is the worst part of adaptations and if i may say including the live action one which we'll talk about um because he always looks horrible mm. um yeah i just i just don't think i think they did such an amazing job with this and in, in, and in the 40s one that like any other version of the beast kind of just looks stupid mm-hmm. like yeah. it's such a hard thing to character to because he is uh, you know he looks like an animal but is a human deep down um and that's a that's a hard balance to because he's not a specific animal he's not mm. um you know, Keen used, he went to the zoo constantly uh, looking at polar bears and other bears and lions and tigers and, you know, really any sort of predatory kind of animal and kind of mashed them all together to create this beast. Mm. Um, so he's not like, it's not like people can use like a polar bear or like a grizzly bear or uh, or um, any animal, a frog, a, a antelope, a moose, whatever, it doesn't matter. Um, but, you know, he's not any specific animal. He's a, a, a sort of fantastical creature that is really hard, I think, to pull off, especially in live action stuff. Like some of the live action adaptations of, of Beauty and the Beast, um, they they look really messy a lot of the time. It's, mm. it's a really difficult character, and and Keen really like you really can't say enough about the amazing work of making that character who he is. Yeah, absolutely. I found in my research actually uh, a a list of the kind of animals that uh glenn keen was inspired by and sort of combined to make this hybrid beast which i thought was really interesting so it's like the mane of a lion uh the beard and head structure of a buffalo the tusks and nose bridge of a wild boar the heavily muscled brow of a gorilla the legs and tail of a wolf and the big and bulky body of a bear that was a hard sentence to say um so many bees um but yeah that i I think it would be so easy just for other animators to sort of go, okay, a, a beast and just, you know, take something that is a lot more familiar and just, I guess, just, just dial it up slightly. But you can, when you sort of think about it broken down into all of those elements, you can really see all of those, all of those creatures come together to create this fantastic thing. He's so magnificent to look at and they do such it's just it's such a hard character to master as well because you have to be fearful of him you have to feel sorry for him you know he's not very nice to Belle and to her father in the beginning so you have to be angry at him as well for acting in the way that he does and you then kind of have to full circle back on him to to really really root for him so to convey all of that emotion in this kind of hybrid beast thing that they've created is just it's extraordinary and i really i i'm you know i'm glad that we kind of get to keep bringing up glenn Keane's name you know going forward as as we have done in previous episodes as well because i i think that i mean he i think said of his own work that the transformation scene we see at the end where beast becomes the prince um oh, he yeah. stands by that as being the finest thing that he has ever animated and he's probably not wrong he's he's probably not wrong i mean there's there's 
stiff competition because he's done some incredible things for Disney, but that scene is beautiful and it it yeah, that actually that to me in this film is probably the best visual and like the best moment visually. Mm. Yeah, because it, it could so easily look really silly because I've seen yeah. other like transformation scenes in films before. Yeah, and I feel like everyone since this has been like mimic or like trying to recreate what they did here. Yeah. Yeah, because it, it just. And none it, of them work. <laughs> it feels realistic. It's like, it doesn't look silly. It's emotional. It's powerful. It's like, it has all of these elements. The only thing that I <laughs> will say. Here's my slightly controversial Beauty and the Beast opinion. I find him more attractive as a beast than I do as a prince. Agreed. There, there I said um, it. <laughs> I think he looks like a very generic um, man. As, yeah. As the prince. Which, I mean, <laughs> is, you know, it's fair enough. Like, I would imagine at that point the, the budget is nearly gone. Yeah. Um, he's, he's a human for like a minute. Mm. Um, and obviously they spent way more time. Uh, developing the beast rather yeah. than the human version of the beast, which makes perfect sense. Do we ever learn his name? Um, not officially in the film, but I believe it's right. Adam. Yeah. Um, which I don't like. I would just call him Prince Beast if it was me, but you know, <laughs> <laughs> Prince Beast. We love to see it. Um, yeah, Adam in the streets. I mean, he's, he's, uh, he's beast in the sheets. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he's definitely beast to like everyone. Like yeah. no one. I don't think I. I think I remember hearing in other places perhaps i looked up in the past that his name is is, is adam that sounds right but like who cares? Mm. it's the beast um but yeah i, I agree there's, there's something about because they they do such a great job kind of infusing beast with with eventually charm mm. um and he really does change a lot as a character um there are um i guess i don't know if we want to go into it yet maybe this is a natural segue to the kind of core issue this film has Yes, I think we're heading. I think we're heading in that direction. Um, All right. So All right. take so, it away. <laughs> um, the uh, what is kind of striking? We're well, kind of not kind of very striking about this film is it is it feels so warm and fuzzy and so wonderful at the end that you almost forget the idea that this is a uh, a great example of Stockholm syndrome, um, which is to say, I will look up the definition. Um, <laughs> Psycholog Stockholm syndrome since bleh, wow Stockholm syndrome <laughs> is a psychological response. It occurs when hostages or abuse victims bond with their captors or abusers. The psychological connection develops over the course of days, weeks, months, or even years of captivity or abuse. So, needless to say, that is a very bad thing. Uh, and to summarize it, it's kind of like when people fall in love with the people that torment them. Hmm. Um, which objectively i don't think you can argue any other way that is exactly what this film is what this is it is exactly what occurs in this movie uh bell maurice her father is is kidnapped is imprisoned by the beast uh bell finds him and exchanges her life for his and he's free to go but she is then imprisoned by the beast uh and then slowly over the course of the rest of the film we fall in love or she falls in love with him and we fall in love with their love hmm. um and it's it's uncomfortable to say the least. However, I will say that the film is so good and so effective that you are still filled with joy even when considering this, um, mm. which is which is not an easy feat to pull off. To really, the relationship is a deeply uncomfortable one uh, in power dynamics. This is not like a new theory. This is you know this was an issue right when it came out. 
Uh, Stockholm Syndrome has been around for ages. This isn't like a new development that like all of a sudden people are looking at this in a new light. Uh, it's it's not that. This is this is messed up to say the <laughs> least. I mean, this is a this is a prisoner. She cannot leave. Yeah, he has a lot of money and a nice library and whatever, and this and and all her all his servants are lovely. That's great. Um, but at its core, this is a movie about someone imprisoning someone, and they fall in love with them mostly because there's there's nothing else, and this is their whole world now because, you know, they established that her father and freedom have been taken away. Hmm. They don't skirt around that. Um. And it's 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 equal parts kind of terrifying and like a testament to how incredible they are at storytelling that they're able to make that feel like beautiful <laughs> and like magical and fills you with joy to know that this woman fell in love with her captor. It's horrifying mm. when you boil it down to the essence of what it is. But they do such a good <laughs> job and they are so gifted at storytelling that you almost forget that is a problem at all. Yeah. <laughs> It's it's funny and it's it's kind of like how I was with The Little Mermaid as well, where I went into The Little Mermaid expecting to have so many more problems with it than I ended up having. And I definitely had that similar thing in mind when going into Beauty and the Beast. Like obviously, I know, I know we mentioned it even in The Little Mermaid that we yeah. were wondering how it would play out this time. We did. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, I, you know, this is beloved childhood favorite of mine. One of my favorite Disney films. Um, but I, I obviously knew about those problematic elements. So I sort of had that in the back of my mind. So I was really looking out for the moment that made me have less of a problem with it this time. And I'm, I'm happy to report that I did find it. Um, <laughs> so bear with me as I try to explain this, but it's in the moment. So it's right after the ballroom scene and they have this kind of lovely exchange on the balcony and, um, you know, talking about is is Belle happy, and she is, but the she is missing her father. Um, and Beast has this really human moment, and then obviously takes her to the enchanted mirror to give her the chance to see to see her father again. And that's when she sort of sees that he is in is in trouble and and needs some help. Um, and in that moment, the Beast decides to to let her go. Now, prior to this point, she was effectively held captive by him even uh, though not effectively well <laughs> she was straight up yeah. she's her prison she's his prisoner yeah oh, what i was gonna say is that i think she became happier with that as a concept as it went along but yes. then obviously that's that, stockholm syndrome yes that, that's <laughs> stockholm syndrome um but yeah in it's it's in that moment when he when he lets her go and the reason why he lets her go is because he loves her. Now that's a, a really surprisingly complex emotional theme for Disney. I think prior to this, it's given us this very kind of black and white uh, picture of love and, and certainly how quickly characters fall in love. But Belle and Beast's relationship is very complex. And, you know, you you have that moment where when he says that, you're like, oh, he, he's he's letting her go. And it's because he loves her so there's a lot to unpack just in that moment but that that for me was the moment where it ever so slightly moved away from the slightly problematic stockholm syndrome elements because oh, it's not slightly though is it it's very <laughs> <laughs> because <laughs> not downplaying it at all but like following that uh, no i understand i understand you yeah following that she then makes the 
the active choice. It is then her choice to go back to him. Yeah, there's there's a lot more to get into there. But but the reason she fell in love with him is because she was trapped there. Yeah, which I completely um I, i'm not downplaying that at no, all no i know i know um and but yeah also, but like also to me I, I agree that like it almost doesn't the film is so effective that it it does it almost doesn't matter at all mm, yeah which is, which is quite extraordinary but i think one of the, the the maybe the key issue of this film besides this objective stockholm syndrome and you really honestly you genuinely can't argue otherwise because that's just factually what's happening um is timeline mm. How long (laughs) is this going on? Because it feels at points like it could be many months. It also feels like it could be a couple of days. If it is a couple of days, it is a lot more troubling. Yeah. Because that is rapid. And that is, that is, is deeply upsetting. I mean, don't worry, it doesn't make the Stockholm syndrome better. If anything, if it takes longer, it, 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 um, it's worse because he's been kidnapped for all these months. Um, I feel like it must be months because all of a sudden it is snowing mm, um, mm. and everyone seemed very warm previously. Like no one was, you know, like it seems like it goes from like summer to winter, but there's a lot of logical leaps. Like is LeFou hiding in a snowman for weeks on end? Because he would be dead. <laughs> um, is it just like a few hours? In which case this has only taken a couple days maximum, which is insane. Mm. Um, and it's, it's, I mean, you can chalk it down to the fact that this is a fairy tale and that's really not what the focus is to be on. Um, but it kind of is, is, is central to this whole Stockholm Syndrome thing. Like, how long is this going on for? And that is not a question that can be even remotely answered. Like, when you see the, the rose at the beginning, there's only, like, a few petals fallen. And mm-hmm. if it's been, as Lumiere says in Be Our Guest, uh, 10 years we've been rusting, needing so much more than dusting, etc. Et um then you can assume that the petal, like, like I think it's like four petals have dropped what, in 10 years. So there's another like 20 petals on the ground by the end of this movie. So has it been like 30 years? Because no one has aged that much. <laughs> and so, like, and, and perhaps this is, well, not perhaps, this is overanalyzing, I'm aware. Um, but that's the whole point. There would be, there, if we weren't overanalyzing, there would be no point of doing a podcast. Um, no one would care because we would just be reciting what you're seeing. But I have many, it's just, it's all just very strange. And I wish that they i wish there was just like a line that says like it's been a year now or something just give me give me something like make it make it make more sense um, but also but again like and i i can't reiterate this enough the the storytelling is so effective the pacing is so strong the characters are so interesting the music is so fantastic the set pieces are so brilliant etc cetera, etc cetera. it almost doesn't matter that mm-hmm. this deeply horrifying romance is like it almost doesn't feel as horrifying as it is and it is bad this is not a healthy romance but also they do but again they do such a good job that it feels like it's one of the most beautiful love stories of all time Mm. and that's and i think that feat cannot be you know spoken about enough like that is so impressive to turn something that is kind of objectively to use the word icky very icky very Mm. gross um (laughs) that this man has kidnapped her and basically forces her uh, to fall in love with him. Mm. But we see it as such a beautiful love story. And, and I feel that way too, that it's a really lovely story. But there's that, a really, a really dark undercurrent mm. um, that makes it, if anything, more interesting. Um, but I would love to know how much time this has taken. I think that's kind of the key to this story, but you you never figure that out. They they don't even come close to explaining that to you. 
Yeah, I, I, for the reason that you said in, in seeing the seasons change, I have always kind of believed it to be perhaps over like a six month, maybe, you know, a month either side, you know, potentially. But yeah, it's kind of like around that region to, to have the seasons change that drastically i feel like it would have to be that amount of time but yeah it isn't it isn't super clear but also it's so it's so easy to get swept up in everything in this film that like you said it almost just doesn't matter and the film doesn't concern itself with with explaining that i'm so no certainly not that would be way too dark (laughs) yeah i'm certainly curious and would like and would like to know the answer to that and there's a, a a bigger timeline question that people have sort of been scratching their heads over as well, which is what age the prince was when he got turned into a beast. So I think yeah. this has mostly been, been debunked now, but it is said somewhere at some point in a line that I believe has subsequently been taken out that the prince is coming up to the the rose will, it, it has to be before his 21st birthday or something like that. That might even still be in the film. I can't remember. I don't think so. Okay. At, at some point, it, it said that the, it was before the last, uh, the petal but fell. I feel like the... I remember that too, so I wonder where that's from. I think the thing I was reading, if the thing I was reading was accurate, is that because people were like pure kicking off about this, they took it out and changed it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Which I love. Um, But yeah, and then, so people were like, okay, he's 21 now. Great, got that. Um, and then the men- the line that you mentioned from Lumiere, 10 years we've been rusting, needing so much more than dusting. So they go, okay, right, 21, take away 10, that's maths I can do. And then they're like, he's 11 when he got turned into a, <laughs> into a, into the or beast. Or technically 10, because he's not yet, you know, 21 is... is yeah, 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 like that's 10. true. Which, which begs the question, why would this witch sorceress lady punish a 10-year-old for being rude? Um, <laughs> because... Or at least punished to such a severe degree, you know. Tell us why don't you ask his parents and see what they say. Like that seems <laughs> that seems wildly unnecessary. And also, the thing that really bugs me in terms of the the magic of this all is why punish the servants? Mm. What did they? Okay, they didn't raise him, right? Why is it their <laughs> job to raise him? Where are the parents and all this? That's what I want to know. Where where are they at? Where <laughs> they go? And if and it, like go find them and punish them because they're the ones who screwed this up. Yeah. Also, also. <laughs> I'm sorry, you are told as a child, one of the cardinal rules of parenting, generally speaking, is to not speak to strangers. So Mm. if a stranger comes to your door and says, can I come in? You are supposed to say no. (laughs) I I don't. I I know. I know. we're We're literally finding straws to grab in this scenario. But really, like this, this lady is punishing him for basically following the basic rules of 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 growing up. You, you, I assume at some point you were told not to speak to strangers. I certainly was. <laughs> Everyone else I know was told not to speak to strangers. So this poor kid, if this is true and he is 10, was told not to speak to strangers. So here he is at home alone, except with his like thousands of servants. Um, and he's told to not answer the door, to, to not speak to them. So when he says, no, you can't come in, that's that's a good thing. He should be rewarded for that, not punished not turned into a beast that is rough well <laughs> i was just about to uh debunk the uh he was 10 years old when he was <laughs> when he was transformed thing because i i think what the logic that makes sense to me and i think someone closer to the film and cleverer than me has also explained this so this isn't me figuring it out um but is that because of the the spell the enchantment 
they they remain a fixed age. So he was transformed into the beach. Went into the beach. <laughs> he was transformed into a beach. Back to uh, film. Into into the beast. Um, when he was twenty. Um, and has remained that age ever since. Um, so even though they have been in their in their current form, that. but but Katzenberg said that he's ten. <laughs> And he would know, surely. I um, but, don't think. But let's 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 go with twenty because ten ten makes no sense. Because if he's frozen in time at ten, this film is even weirder. Absolutely. Um, and I'm not gonna. I'm, I refuse to engage with that logic. I'm gonna refuse to engage with ten year old beast locking up Bell and forcing her to love him. That's that's too weird. That ten year old year old children are not looking to fall in love. Okay, they're looking to like run around and get messy. Um, yeah. <laughs> so I I I I, refu- I I rebuke that. Yeah. Um, yeah, you're wrong, Jeffrey Katzenberg. Come find me and talk about it. Come on, be a guest. We Please would love to have you. be I'm our sure guest. You have unbelievable <laughs> stories. Um, but yeah, no, that's uh, yeah, that's it's wild, isn't it? This this film has a lot of of strange happenings. The weirdest, I think. Okay, well, there, there's two things. One is quite minor. One is quite major. I think. So the minor one is how does Philippe know to bring Belle to that castle? Because Philippe left like Maurice alone on a cliff. So how does he know he's? How does he know he's there? Second, that's minor. Second, Mrs. Potts and Chip, okay? Mm-hmm. At one point, she says, go back into the cupboard with your brothers and sisters. And there are tons of them. <laughs> Why does she hate all of her other children? <laughs> <laughs> that is such a weird detail to me. That makes no, like, logical. That is the the biggest logical leap, I think, in this movie. It's a very, like, it's a throwaway line. It's sweet. <laughs> Until you think, like... Because all those other little cups in there, or little saucers, or whatever they're called, have faces. So they're all presumably former servants, or her children, or something. So okay. <laughs> why did they stay in the cupboard the whole time? What did they do? Is she evil? This is is this our is this our re- is this our like retelling of Beauty and the Beast, where Mrs. the wonderful Mrs. Potts is actually like an evil, demented psychopath that keeps mm-hmm. all of her children except one locked up. Like, is she like Norman Bates and psych? This is wild. <laughs> Yes, uh, this is the the spinoff, the horror spinoff that we all need. Is Psycho uh, could never. She she has kidnapped all of these children, um, and just has one, that one special one, and the others live in a cupboard, and uh, (laughs) (laughs) all kinds of dark, twisted things happening. Um, I thought I had an explanation, but then it (laughs) kind of got ruined by the fact that they have faces. Um, yeah, that's if they didn't have faces, then it's actually quite a funny joke. But yeah, fact, it, it's still funny. Don't get me wrong, but the fact that they they all have faces, so presumably we are led to believe that they are all alive. The thing that I <laughs> I feel like I keep saying the thing that I read in my extensive research on this film was that um because if it was the case that every single fork, saucer, cup, ladle, I don't know, saucepan, whatever, yeah, was, but they don't have faces. Well. <laughs> Hang on. <laughs> if Sorry, it was the I'm, ca- so, I'm so shaken by this. <laughs> I know. If it was the case that they were all servants, this place would be brimming with servants. They would, there would be in their very, thousands. Very true. And I know it's a big castle, but I really don't think you need that many servants. So I, the theory is that all of the objects in the castle have been enchanted, but only yeah. a I, kind I, of. I buy that. Yeah, select few were actual real life people, so it it would make more sense to me if the other cups didn't have faces because that, like Way you said, they'd be like, I wouldn't yeah. even bring it up. Yeah, <laughs> as it stands, we. Uh... I noticed it. I was like, all these—they all have faces. 
people listening, when you watch this film, have a look at that that little cute little joke. It's way more sinister <laughs> than you could ever imagine. Yeah. I would like someone to do a supercut of of that moment, but then put like the psycho music over it. That would be <laughs> right. So in our like in our imagined like retelling, yeah, this can just it can just be called Mrs. Potts, and like Chip is just like walking around being like a boy's best friend is his mother, <laughs> um, and like someone along the line finds him and like tries to free him, but evil Mrs. Potts is having none of it. And it's just, it's, just, it's so weird to me. I just, that, that moment really, really stood out. And I, I think I just wrote in all caps, like, what is, oh no, I was like, why does Mrs. Boss hate all of her other children except Chip? There are so many. Why does she have like 30 kids? Again, whoever, so whoever, whoever animated that one moment and gave them faces is either just like made a mistake or is deeply twisted and sadistic. And I would like to speak to them. Mm, I'm curious. I want to. I want to know more. I'd like to believe it's the latter. Uh... <laughs> Me too. <laughs> Who would have um, ever guessed that the people love the villains want there to be like the most sinister story about the sweetest little teapot in the universe? It's it's funny because I was uh I was reviewing our ridiculous sequel ideas that we've come up with um we've come up with so far because I think when it comes to our not even our final episode we'll do kind of like a wrap-up episode like after we've done frozen 2 um and one of the (laughs) the things that we've sort of toyed around with is our favorite ridiculous sequel idea that we've come up with and i was looking through the list and it's like madame is the real villain of aristocats basil slash the mouse queen are the real villains of the great mouse detective king triton is king triton is the real villain of little mermaid (laughs) nothing but facts we're taking all of the the protagonists, the the non-villains, if you will, and uh, turning them all into villains. That's how we work. That's what we want from our spin-offs. Um, yeah, I, I'm telling you, I think <laughs> this one might have the most logic to it, though. I, there's really something here. It certainly has the most like in-film logic. Like yes. I, so, I <laughs> back this theory up. And even like, oh no! And then at the end of the song, she's like, "Off to the cupboard now, Chip." And it's like. <laughs> That takes on a a whole new sinister a yeah. sinister meaning go, now. Go that... back to your poor like her <laughs> are his like brothers and sisters basically like the um you know in Ursula's like cavern. You oh see yeah, the, the lost like, souls. Souls, yeah. Is that what they are? <laughs> anyway, <laughs> this... I just, I just, man, that 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 one that really uh that really shook me up in this 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 viewing. Yeah, it's not it's not something I had it's not something I had noticed before. Oh well, Mrs. Potts was gonna be our in this house we stand, but then you know we <laughs> turns out she's the most vicious character in Disney history. So yeah, we discovered uh, she is the true villain of this piece. Uh, no, I kid. We had uh, another another choice for. I just assumed we had the same uh, the so, same choice. <laughs> so I think I think it I think it is right. I I yeah. will say based again what we're trying to do with this is like shine a spotlight on someone that you may have completely forgotten is there my personal favorite is cogsworth but i think he's very well known and mm. like he's not one um that you would would do but i will say my my favorite joke in this movie is a cogsworth um scene it's when he is doing the tour with bell um <laughs> and he says um if it's not if it ain't baroque don't fix it <laughs> and he like literally tears up with laughter he's having such a good time uh, he wipes his tears away with the uh, quack hands, which is hilarious. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then he looks to see that Belle and Lumiere are long gone. 
Uh, and it reminded <laughs> me very much of my other favorite scene in Little Mermaid, in which Sebastian puts on a full-blown musical number and Ariel has left and he has no idea. Mm. Um, and it just reminded me of that. I, I, I cackled. I had a really good time. And he, he's my personal favorite. He also has a great redemption. Well, not redemption, but like he saves Lumiere at the end, mm. which we love to see. Um, yeah. But no, I think, I think our stand choice is correct. Okay. Okay, that's that's good. It's always good to know we're on the we're on the same page, which as we established we, we kind, is we kind all of the have time. two though, right? Like <laughs> Yes. Yeah. The second one I honorable mention I think is is definitely worthy. Uh, absolutely it is, yeah. I just, just very quickly a, another great uh Cogsworth moment is when um the beast I think he's deciding like what he can give to Belle or what he can offer her. And then Cogsworth responses, flowers, chocolates, promises you don't promises intend, you to don't keep. intend to keep. <laughs> it's so good. Oh, <laughs> I love it so much. He really made me chuckle on this watch. And when he has like a, a pirate hat on at the end and is just like really hamming it up. He is a sensation. Fantastic. Um, yeah. Yes, I, I agree. I think he's too well known to be uh, in this house we stand. But Agreed. we've uh, we've gone for, you know, we, we question the logic of how this character knew where the castle was. But we stand uh, Philippe the horse. Um, mostly because we always stand a horse. <laughs> <Can't help myself. laughs> Particularly when they're quite uh, when they're quite sassy, we get a pretty good eye roll from Philippe at one point where he's just like, "I know the way," and Maurice is having absolutely none of it and is it's like, "Do I take the the path that's like bright and sunny and golden, or do I take the path that is like scary and dark?" And it's like, "Well, we know the path that you should take. Philippe knows the path that you should take, but you're going to ignore him. Philippe is smarter than also, all of us." <laughs> Maurice fully gaslights him, and he's like, "Why would you?" T- send me this way when yeah. fully tried to take him the other way and that is not fair um justice justice for Philippe. hashtag you justice know, for Philippe, Philippe. Philippe is a delight and i can actually just off the top of my head i won't say who but i can think already of two horses in the future that we will be standing as well um, yes there, there are some really great there's great animals in general in disney obviously that we've spoken about at length but horses in particular uh there's never been a main horse yet mm-hmm. uh or I, don't, I don't think any maybe maybe in 2035 or something like that. We'll, we'll finally get a horse movie um, <laughs> from Disney, anyway. There's others, um, but yeah, no. The they have a really good track record with horses. There's a lot of really fun ones, and none of them can ever speak, mm-hmm. which is always fun. I don't know why they feel this way about horses. Yeah, but, uh, they do. Oh no, I think that the um, Fru-Fru is the horse. In um, no, is that a cow? No, the horse um, and the cats that I think speak. Yeah, Fru. And maybe one in Hundred One Dalmatians. I think am I, am I crazy? Speak. No, I think I think you're right. I. Yeah, I think that sounds that sounds right. Anyway, okay. I know there is a well. Generally horse. speaking, when there are talking creatures and stuff, for some reason the horses don't talk. Mm. Um, however, Philippe, I think is is a lovable dude who uh, <laughs> he's a lot of fun. I'm a fan. He he is lovely, and uh, yeah, there's certainly I can think ahead to uh, a little film called Tangled, where although there yep. is competition in that film because there's another character that I absolutely love in that film. Um, yeah but also an excellent horse in that film. Yeah, um, Hercules as well was the other one I was thinking of. Yes, not the first horse that we will stand, and I could guarantee not the last horse <laughs> we will stand. <laughs> um, but a couple of honourable mentions. Um, I think I'll say I'll do the other one afterwards because I've, I've got a... We're, we're going to be delving back into the Disney Wiki page, which, as Amazing. we know, is always a, always a treat. Um, but one of the other characters, honourable mention, uh, is the the wardrobe. I don't believe we ever get a name or find out what. Uh, no, we do see her transform at the end. I think, don't we? I can't remember. 
You do mm-hmm. in the live action one, but I can't Ugh. remember if you if you do it. But it's Joanne Morley. She's great. Uh, okay, yeah. I, yeah. <laughs> the bit that made me laugh the most in this film is when there is the showdown between the the village people and oh, the... Oh, what a sequence. Oh. <laughs> it's so good. It's so, this wild slapstick scene where the, the furniture items are kind of fighting back and the wardrobe appears from like the top of the balcony and just this fantastic kind of like operatic scream as she like throws herself off the balcony and i laughed so hard at that moment and, and... she crushes them <laughs> yeah she does <laughs> goodbye whoever you were oh yeah they they didn't see it coming he's crushed by wardrobe but so it's certainly a way to go but yeah i what i a way to go <laughs> for that moment uh an honorable mention but um should also, we uh... um slight easter egg with her oh yeah um at the I don't know if you if you noticed it, but it's not the the end is not the only Sleeping Beauty reference I caught in this movie. When she opens her wardrobe and gives Belle an outfit that she does not wear, it is the um, Aurora's pink dress. It is indeed. I did notice it was in my notes. <laughs> I'd love to see it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the, this film is many Disney films are indebted to Sleeping Beauty, and this is but another. Mm, definitely, yeah. And um, <laughs> shall we? Let's let's get into the 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 bimbets as uh. Is that is that their like official name? It absolutely is. Yeah. Um. So they are the they are the three ladies who are utterly in love with Gaston. Yes, they are. Have you have you? More I don't than anything in the whole world. <laughs> I don't know what your uh bimbet knowledge is like, Barry. But do you know what their actual names are? In in no way do I know. Okay, <laughs> let me tell you. Their names are. Uh, I've got to get this right. Okay, Claudette, Laurette, and Paulette. Laurette. Laurette. Is that a name? There's yeah. Someone listening named Laurette. I'm so sorry. Um... <laughs> yeah, Claudette, Laurette, and Paulette. They all end Amazing. in et. I love it. I love that. <laughs> I've heard of those. Two, I've heard of two of those names. I've never heard anyone named Laurette. My apologies. I, I'm not that familiar with French culture. I'm sure there's a lot of you. <laughs> <laughs> they're all gonna get in touch now and be like you monster um <laughs> actively riot against us oh, well. yeah <laughs> these uh these lovely gals are uh they're they're triplets we sort of see them crop up in the opening number and yeah basically they their entire purpose is just to fawn over gaston so you can you can bet that there is some fantastic stuff on this disney wiki page um we've referred to this before it is disney.fandom.com forward slash wiki um you can amuse yourself for hours by looking up obscure disney characters and then just reading the character information about them mm-hmm. uh we've done this for miss bunny i'm sure we did it for another character as well oh um vixie in uh fox and the hound oh, um yeah. just for the quotes uh <laughs> But yeah, uh, so this is how I learned their names. It is not said in the film that they are uh, Claudette, Lorette, and Paula. So their personality, right. Provocative, emotional, boy crazy, love-struck, silly, naive, simple-minded, adoring, flirtatious, ditzy, air-headed, oblivious, and ignorant. Now that is someone who has looked up the same word uh, in a thesaurus and <laughs> put it down. <laughs> That is, a ta- that is a scathing takedown. Also extremely accurate. So Yeah, yeah it absolutely is. Um, then we get into what is quite often my favourite section of the character information. Um, a particularly savage entry for Bambi's mum, which we were was highlighted to us earlier by, by Daisy. 
um, which is uh, Bambi's mum's like goal is to look after Bambi, and then in brackets it's like failed. <laughs> so savage um so for the bimbets uh their goal uh to no surprise is uh to win gaston's affection in brackets it says failed they did not succeed in the winning his affections um their their likes um keeps it pretty simple just two things that these gals like doing uh they like gaston and they like helping gaston <laughs> So Being Neo Gaston, looking yeah. at Gaston, looking, thinking about Gaston, smelling my, Gaston. My, um, <laughs> my very favorite bimbet moment is um, at the wedding, which does not happen. Um, that Gaston has set up um, for <laughs> Belle when he's about as he's about to propose to her. Obviously, she wholeheartedly rejects him. Um, but there's like a really quick. Uh, there's great editing in this movie. There's a great cut from LeFou orchestra, like orchestrating, conducting um, an orchestra playing the wedding march. And it cuts to the three bimbets who are aggressively sobbing. Um, <laughs> and it's just a, it, it's my personal highlight of the, of the bimbets. And also their singing of tall, dark, strong, and handsome brute is excellent. Yes. <laughs> it's such a great moment. Um, yeah, I think that, that was uh, about all the... Well, in under their dislike, sorry, it just says they dislike Gaston choosing Belle over them. Um, also, anything that <laughs> Belle... Yeah, anything that draws Gaston's attention away from them, I would imagine, too. Yeah also dislike bell rejecting gaston and seeing gaston down see they just they just want the best for gaston so thoughtful they really are and i know they say never go down to the comment section but trust and believe the comment section of these disney wiki pages are absolute gold um and (laughs) this person who shall remain nameless for uh reasons which will become clear their comment was um i actually like them they seem to be nice girls just not the brightest I know, but like I don't, I, I just, I just don't like that. That they're just because they're these three lovely blonde gals who love and adore Gaston. That this person has just made this scathing assumption about their intelligence. But <laughs> well, you know, it, it's kind of interesting. I, I feel like maybe this was like the animators kind of or in the storytellers playing on the idea of like the previous princesses mm. whose like kind of only goals generally speaking were like to fall in love and get married and i think this was kind of their way of contrasting them as bimbets with Belle, who is very much the opposite of that although i mean real honestly she kind of becomes that mm. uh by which is i think the most disappointing thing is like we just had ariel who i, I feel like is so exciting and then i feel like Belle is kind of disappointing um like i feel like she starts so strong but then it doesn't really take her anywhere and then i i think while the romance i think kind of benefits beast in a lot of ways i don't really see how it benefits her that much except she inherits a humongous library Mm. um so you know (laughs) she'll get she'll get to read all the books she ever wanted but i don't know i'm not sure how you i don't know what you think about Belle. i'm I'm conscious that like we're we're running the risk of being like a 17 hour podcast but yeah, um, which Belle, I'm okay Belle is, with. Bell is, is fairly important, um, so it's worth kind of mentioning the princess each time, and I feel like it's kind of a come down from from Ariel in some ways. I feel like at the beginning there's so much potential, you know, she wants so much, and she has such big ambitions, mm. and she just seems very content with giving them all away. Yeah, I and thing is, like a lot of people, for a lot of people, Belle is their favorite princess, and she is probably one of mine as well and i i don't want to take anything away from the people who who really really like her as a character and they admire the fact that she is you know 
a bit of a bookworm she's headstrong she does kind of like at least in the beginning want this kind of better life for herself she wants to leave this this small town life and and go on to bigger and better things and seems to have all these grand ambitions and i agree with you that i think that as the film progresses those ambitions are diminished slightly there's no other at the very least like heartily compromised yeah yeah for sure that is really a better way of putting it than that is that you know she does have these these big ambitions and these big goals and you know she certainly i guess you know one of the lines uh, in the reprises you know she wants she wants adventure and all this sort of thing and she she gets that i mean you know certainly some some stuff happens but is then just what happens at the end of this film she kind of settles down and and that's it she lives out the rest of her days as a princess like i i kind of want more for her as a character and i think she's certainly set up in that way um i think she's still she remains throughout like a a pretty strong character in the sense that she you know she doesn't immediately just kind of after the ballroom scene like the film could end there she doesn't fall into the beast's arms and just accept that that's how things are going to be now she cares about her father she she goes out looking for him and you know going back even the she takes that incredibly courageous step to take her father's place and that's an incredible sacrifice for for anyone to make and particularly unexpected i think to see from a princess who in previous films have sort of seemed to lack agency and we see an Mm -hmm. an improvement on that i think in mulan so i think in each in each disney princess they kind of build on the on the previous and what has come before and add extra elements to those characters which which makes them all different which is great i think it's there's a there's a lot i think in the earlier films where you could see them as being quite similar in terms of their ambitions and and certainly how quickly they kind of fall in love and that's that's made a joke of later but yeah i i think i think she is still a good character she is still one of my favorites but i hadn't really thought about it in in that way before that she does she does go on a bit of a journey across the film and it's you could argue that it's not necessarily the best the best thing for her i mean i'm sure she's happy and maybe it is the best thing for her but it's it it's doesn't seem like those same ambitions she had at the start kind of carry through. Yeah. I I, I feel like she's almost a step back from Ariel in some ways. Because Ariel's mm. ambition was to be where the people are, and that is exactly what she gets. She doesn't compromise on that. Um But it's yeah, I think there's a don't get me wrong, there's a lot to like about Belle, not only the fact that she is unbelievably wonderfully animated she looked mm. incredible and the close-up they did a lot of close-ups on ariel's face and they were amazing but there's just a like a, this is a whole new level and it's mm-hmm. only two years i don't know how they advance so rapidly it's really amazing uh but the close-ups of, of bell's face at every moment are breathtaking and she looks fantastic the costumes are great i just wish um I guess that's the issue kind of with fairy tales really is that like they they get tied up in a in a pretty bow and and sometimes that um excuse kind of personal development mm. uh, but I think there's a there's a there's not get me wrong there's a lot to like about her I just think it's it's almost a little bit disappointing how it all ends for her I mean you know he's a human being now so presumably they can travel the world and do all sorts of wonderful things so mm. maybe it's not that bad yeah, I guess we don't but, see but, that. But, but, but when she came back to the Beast and found, and found you know, <laughs> confessed her love, she had no idea he was going to become a person. So mm, that's they very don't true. tell her that. 
Yeah. They don't reveal that information to her. That's just the... <laughs> she must be like, oh, well, that's really lucky. Yeah. <laughs> Imagine, though, if she turned around and was like, ooh, I prefer you as a beast. <laughs> <laughs> she almost she almost does for a minute, but then she's like, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll go with it. Well, I mean, I'm team beast. I've, I've, I've said that. I've made, I've made my feelings clear. But um, yeah, yeah <laughs> I think we're, we're, I guess, start wrapping up. I know we've still got a couple of things um to get yeah, to, but we'll... Um... I, let, let's mention the like the what well, we talked about the one Easter egg with the, with the Royal Jets, but let's just like yes. quickly mention we have been on Bam- we have been on Bambi Watch or <laughs> Bambi's Mum Watch for ever since we saw Bambi. Uh, we have noted her multiple appearances, sometimes Bambi as well, but always Bambi's mum. She's always there, just hanging out all over the world. Doesn't matter where it's at, she'll be there. Uh, <laughs> doesn't matter how many years she's been dead for, she will find a way. Um, <laughs> and now, uh, nearly fifty, it's forty nine years later, nineteen ninety one. Um, we have Bambi's mom in the first shot of the movie, which is beautiful, by the way. Um, she is there, uh, chilling in the meadow, having a snack, uh, being alive. Uh, yeah, we we see Bambi's mom just we, at the very beginning. We do indeed. Very, I think it's the very first shot. It is, yeah. I that's it. It's the the first line in my notes is Bambi's mom sighting. So yeah, Me too. <laughs> right at right at the top, there she is. So. Um, I am now that crazy person who like yells Bambi's mom when they see a deer in a Disney film. So, uh... but but this one is gen- <laughs> it's not just a deer; it is genuinely it is Bambi's mom. Yeah, yeah, and they're... they have all so far been recycled. They are one hundred percent Bambi's mom. <laughs> they are, and uh, in case anyone has missed our insane fan theory, it is that um she is something of a Watchmen figure in the in the Disney universe. Uh, she is the one. Confirmed. Uh, confirmed she is the one uh the the sort of the constant in this in this universe that all of these disney films are connected and she is the very thing that connects them um i there i've not put any thought beyond that <laughs> into this theory um but it's got weight i think i'd like someone more intelligent than me to try and uh pick that apart and come up with the evidence but um yeah that's our that's our theory we're always on the lookout for her so it's always nice when she crops up in a film is a fairly yeah, reliable I'm not, I'm not sure i can't remember if there's another one or not but my mm. eyes will be peeled for her they absolutely will yeah as you can say it's a, a fairly reliable easter egg to sort of if you know you spot a deer you know it's da- bambi's mum. so <laughs> <Definitely>. <laughs> we've ruined um, disney films for everyone now by trying to spot this <laughs> <laughs> so we we've talked about this regularly um each week um as disney loves remaking loves sequels uh didn't used to <laughs> but it certainly does now. And the Beauty and the Beast has two animated sequels. Um, one is uh, Belle's Enchanted Christmas, which is bad. Um, and the other one is some sort of anthology, which is worse. Um, <laughs> which is funny because this is probably one of the most, if not the most critically acclaimed Disney movie. Um, and then the sequels are like notoriously critically reviled. Uh, that doesn't mean they don't have their fans. The, um, the Christmas one is not terrible. Um, I am not personally inclined to enjoy any Christmas movie, although there are some wonderful ones. It's a Wonderful Life, obviously, being the the cream of the crop. Um, you know, not to say the whole holiday films are awful, but this one is not very good, uh, and the <laughs> anthology one is relatively unbearable and looks ugly. Um, there is also. <laughs> do, do you have any thoughts? Do you have any thoughts on the animated ones? Have you seen them? I've not seen them, and I have no plans. I only to. have the vaguest <laughs> memories of them. That's no. You're 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 correct to do that. Um. This one, however, has a very notable live-action remake that came out in 2017. 
uh, that grossed, uh, I believe it's $1.2 billion worldwide. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was very successful. It was also one of the most expensive movies they've ever made. I think it was around $250 million budget. Um, so they probably didn't profit as much as you would think, but they, they definitely profited. Don't you worry. They did just fine uh, <laughs> with that movie. Um, it's bad. Yeah, it is. <laughs> um, and it's funny because so I, I watched it. I saw it in cinemas and I was like, oh, oh okay, it's fine. Um, and I hadn't rewatched Beating the Beast for a good few years now, at, at least until I've, I've I've actually seen in the span of the last few years the Beating the Beast re- remake more than Beating the Beast, which is tragic. Um, <laughs> but it's but it's it's true. I'm sorry. Um, because I rewatched it this week for this just to I was because I kind of forgot about it, which is not surprising when you watch it. <laughs> um, but you know when you watch it, you're like, okay, this isn't terrible. But then you watch the animated Beating the Beast, and I always I always as a just a personal thing, I want Beating whatever film we're talking about to be the very last film I watch, whether it's that day we record or the day before. Um, I always want it to be the last thing I I kind of see before we talk because I want it to be the freshest thing in my mind. Um, and when you watch this film, it really reminds you how bad the live action one is. Mm-hmm. Um. It, it is it follows the kind of thing that we'll note in the next well these the next two movies after this um is that they're way too long this the the beating the beast is like two hours and ten minutes while the animated one is like a, a brief 84 probably like 80 without without the credits um it adds like an extra 40 minutes for no reason um every in many ways is the exact same film um you know it's basically the same screenplay they have credited two screenwriters i don't know how because it's so similar um they use some of the same shots um all the all the songs are there they add more for some unholy reason um and for the most part it's it in a way feels a lot like a shot for shot remake one of them in a couple films is quite literally a shot for shot remake that is also somehow like 40 minutes longer i don't know how they do it um it's it's quite a talent (laughs) but it's all very overblown overlong and uninspiring and it's also frequently really beautiful but also frequently really ugly um particularly i think mrs potts is an abomination in the live action remake it is horrifying to look at don't get me wrong emma thompson does a lovely job singing beauty and the beast uh she's very charismatic and charming and she is a great choice the casting uh mostly is is quite excellent mostly um i should i should note um (laughs) but the the, there's two things I find particularly egregious about it. One is the fact that all of the songs that we know and love are like really, really long because they add a whole bunch of like extra musical phrases that are not needed and only serve to make the songs feel bloated and take away all the charm that made them so great in the first place. Um, and second of all is LeFou. Now, normally it wouldn't really matter, but canonically, he is the only like openly... I don't know if he's openly gay. Well, I guess he is at the end. But he's the only gay character in in Disney. And, you know, there's lots of theories that other characters are. Um, There's a very strong belief that Elsa is, and it's definitely true, but they haven't confirmed that. Um, But this is the one, the only one so far, not in the animated one, but in the live action one, uh, that the director did an interview that he was very proud and very thrilled. And there was a lot of marketing around the fact um, that LeFou, um, played by Josh Gad, ugh, (laughs) <laughs> um was you know the first openly gay character in in disney and for people like me who have been waiting uh quite literally forever for it it's very exciting so when i saw this film i was ready for something and all you get besides the fact that lefou is absolutely unbearable throughout this entire movie um i don't know if you feel the same way i do <laughs> okay good um is that we get like a a brief 
like maybe two frames, like a fraction of a second of LeFou dancing with an, another guy um, at the end of the ballroom scene. He's barely there. You barely see it. If you blink, you could miss it. And it it's, I mean, it's pandering to say the least. That that being said, because I'm so starved for queer <laughs> content, I do get very emotional whenever I see it, which is really annoying because I know it's very cloying and very pandering. But like, you know, pandering stuff can be very successful sometimes. Um, and we all get swept up in emotions and it's mostly, I think, because the music is so good because it's the same score. Mm. Um, so they just, they just reuse Alan Menken's score and he does some more, uh, music in the film as well. But, you know, it's, it's that, it's that moment, you know, that music at the end and it's lovely music beating the beast, the theme. Um, it's hard not to be stirred up by that and, and the, the combination is nice, I guess, but like, it's so insulting to like kind of promote that as such a big thing mm. and then even if they didn't promote it just like shoehorn that in there is i distasteful to say the least to me mm. yeah i echo all of the problems you have with the live action i quite actively dislike this film um i don't think it's my least favorite i think we've still no, got there's that even worse. one to come uh very very soon um but yeah i i do really really dislike this film and I know a lot of people who love it and like that's absolutely fine if this if I have I have a friend of mine shout out to you I won't say your name to protect you but <laughs> I know they've seen it I know they've seen it many many times in cinemas and probably since yeah we have a, a mutual friend who absolutely loved this film as well and I <laughs> had to apologize and be like I hated it I'm sorry um, <laughs> <laughs> um yeah I my very very specific problem with this film is in the casting and this is something that is actually, I think I will bring up again when we talk about Lion King, but it's picking the people for the roles based on their star power. And that is not, oh, yeah. that is not something that the, the animated film did. And I get it. It's different. It's like the exact opposite, if anything. Yeah, exactly. Like, it, it, you know. Like people, people going to movies aren't necessarily aware of Broadway performers. It's a very specific community. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And I appreciate that sometimes like a, a star is needed to kind of, you know, add a bit of weight to something or kind of sell a product. This is a Disney, Disney in all caps, live yeah, action they remake. They can, like, like I said the other week, they can literally hire like inanimate objects. Yeah. And people, people will flock to it. This, thing, do this thing sells itself. It doesn't need those people in it. And as, because of that, they mucked up the casting so terribly it's like it these people do not fit these roles and some people did uh, my very specific problem is with emma watson i think she is horribly miscast as Belle. um a lot of kind of was said around the fact that her singing was not up to scratch so there's a fair amount of uh digital trickery done with her voice and that's absolutely fine if 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 you know you are selling your entire movie to the kind of Emma Watson fans, the Harry Potter fan base who know this person, and 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 that's it. But that's that's under the assumption that your product without her wouldn't sell. It's yeah. Disney. Well, I, I I really <laughs> like Emma Watson. I actually think I think yeah. she's very talented, but I I agree. I don't think she's is a sensible choice for this, um, because. You know the the whole point of Beauty and the Beast is that they're all incredibly talented singers. Mm. Um, and you then replace like the the only really good singer in this is Audra McDonald, who is um the wardrobe who sings very <laughs> briefly like at the beginning and the end. Mm. I don't think the rest of them are particularly gifted in any. Well, the guy the guy whoever Gaston is is pretty good. 
Um, Nick Evans. Yeah. Also, the guy who plays Gaston and Beast are the exact same person to me, and I literally cannot tell them apart. <laughs> um, I genuinely thought they were the same for a, a, a while. Um, That's very funny. <laughs> but yeah, like I think for the most part, like these people. Well, actually, Josh Josh Gad is a pretty good singer, and he he works well in that voice for LeFou. Mm. But like Emma Thompson is not known as a singer. Um, Ewan McGregor is certainly not known as a singer who does be Argassi's Lumiere. Um, it's it's kind of it's more like stunt casting, very much like um Lion King, the mm. the live action one of that too. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I I I agree. I, I, do we, I don't really want to talk about it anymore. It's gross. No, I was just gonna. I was just gonna say that <laughs> I. I think in terms of the casting, they could get away with like a handful of big names like your Emma Thompsons and your Ian McKellen's in it as well. I think. I think he's wonderful. Um, also doesn't sing, so if, if he can't sing, it doesn't matter. Yeah, so you can have those 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 bigger names in those smaller roles but i really would have loved to have seen like uh an unknown and you know someone who perhaps like was you know on broadway or that was their background and then kind of getting their their first major film role and they go more in the direction of unknowns when it comes to the aladdin um live action remake Uh, a notable exception to that in one of the roles but a lot of the characters in in that that they get the casting right in that. I'm going to save my thoughts until we talk about um Aladdin next next week. Um, but yeah, I, I a lot of problems with the Beauty and the Beast remake. I I production design absolutely gorgeous, but I think the Beast looks terrible. I don't like looking at him. Um, I think most of the I think that that like the castle and everything in it is just kind of. Uh, I mean, I'd like, I actually, I'd like Cogsworth. I think they do a great job with him, and I think that's kind of it. Lumiere is okay. Mm. Um, but I think most of them look <laughs> anywhere from, like, not good to Mrs. Potts, which I think is a horrible decision. I, I cannot fathom why they did it that way. She looks like something straight out of, like, The Conjuring. She looks... Well. <laughs> which, which, maybe we're right then. Okay, let's, um, let's, shall we, shall we go over the themes and, and and close out now that everyone knows and confirm that um, Mrs. Potts is actually like hell spawn. <laughs> yeah, it's like... true because I actually I I can't I don't, I want to be clear before I say that after I say that that Angela Lansbury does an amazing job and Mrs. Potts in the animated version, which is the one we're talking about, is phenomenal. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> themes, sidekicks. This movie is bursting at the seams with sidekicks. We actually barely spoke about LeFou. Um, but he's he's delightful. I mean, uh, there's not much to say about him. He's really dumb and um doesn't do a whole lot. Mm. <laughs> yeah, he's just kind of a sycophant, isn't he? To, um, to I love I love um the animation though. Mm. I think he's he's a really well designed character, like everyone in this movie. Um, but obviously we have you know Lef- Gaston has Lefou, but we have Lumiere, Cogsworth, Mrs. Potts, Chip, um, Philippe, the um dog Ottoman. Um, the, the wardrobe the the kitchen um oven thing there's loads they're everywhere first there's too many uh, actually there aren't they're all great um man and nature um you know man and nature literally converge when when um adam becomes the beast um so that's it's, it's very relevant to this absence of a parent um bell's mother is unknown they do address that in beauty and the beast the live action version which serves no purpose um, and, <laughs> which is another problem with that is it adds like plot threads and then like does not care about finishing them yeah. or like dealing with them in any meaningful way anyway um, <laughs> but you know Belle kind of finds like surrogate parents particularly I would say in Mrs. Potts 
Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, they all kind of, I don't know how they did a bad job raising the beast because they did a, they did a lovely job um, making Belle feel comfortable in her prison. <laughs> um, and then we get a full-blown Disney death. We didn't get one last week. We get a very dramatic one this time mm. um, with the beast. We get um, basically all the tenants of the Disney death we love. We get tragic weather. We get a big storm. We get tears from all our beloved pals who are uh, surrounding the beast in this devastating moment. We get um, the first of these kind of like deaths around like someone crying over them and then they're kind of like resurrected like through magic. This is not the, the this is not the last one. We'll see. We'll see another um, a while from now. Um, and yeah, we get a we get a really lovely, really well executed as well Disney death. Even though there's been so many at this point, you just know like it's really <laughs> hard to like really be invested in this death because you know you just know it's mm. Disney. You know that it's not going to happen. Mm. And uh, that's uh, that's all. Yeah, although we'll absolutely get to it when we uh, get to Lion King, but they they yep. really pull the rug out from us uh, with the they absolutely do with, with the death in that film. But uh, it's been so long at that point; it's been like over fifty years since it's really happened. That mm. like it's yeah, it's a big one. Oh boy, we ready for me to cry on a podcast because that's going to be the one. <laughs> <laughs> Oh dear, yes. Uh, <laughs> we've got all of that to look forward to. Um, I I think that's we've 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 covered a lot. Um, did you have anything absolutely final to say on Beauty and the Beast before we uh, before we start wrapping Mrs. up? Mrs. is evil. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> it, it's it's great. It does it's it's such an impressive feat in so many ways, animation wise, storytelling wise, um, awards wise. This was really like the film that cemented like if if. A Little Mermaid was kind of like that suggestion that they could get to the place of the Golden Age again and replicate that level of ability and success. Mm-hmm. Uh, Beating the Beast was that cemented confirmation that they absolutely could. Um, they kind of set out to make their next truly great movie when they did this, and I don't think they could have imagined just how successful they would be as a result. Because this movie, in terms of merchandising and things, and even re-releases and DVDs and 4K Blu-rays and whatever, has continues to rake money in for them. Mm-hmm. Um, there was also a spin-off TV series. Like they, they have profited an unfathomable sum <laughs> uh, from this movie to date, mm-hmm. um, and almost deservedly so because it's it's tremendous mm-hmm. it's amazing it is so rewarding to watch again i hadn't seen it in in years and it, it is it's just delightful it's one of the best paced movies as well there's not like a moment that feels like too long or too short it's just it's so good and it's so quick mm. yeah and it is longer than some of the it's kind of getting now into the the region where the films are all kind of like 80 like 90 yeah but it it does not feel it like it not at all breezed by in comparison to rescuers down under which i was a, a little bit of a slog for me towards the end but yeah this it's so well paced it just everything about this film like the kind of golden age disney films it just feels like disney absolutely firing on all cylinders and just getting everything right and we definitely see that in in little mermaid i I don't want to sort of you know play play down that film because it is extraordinary as well but this really feels like the moment that people kind of know this is what they expect from disney films going forward at least yeah they're, they're they're back in a in a big way and this is absolutely kind of the trend that we see continue from from this point and um 
yeah, a lot of my, uh, well, previous favourite films coming up real soon. Uh, so <laughs> we're going to have a lot of fun over the next uh, the next few episodes, I think. So this is a this is an extraordinary decade. Mm. Yeah, and we're we're into the the thick of it. The next, I mean, really all of them are, have, whether they're incredible or not, they all have something really fascinating to offer. I think. Mm. Um, and honestly, I think the last thing I'll say about Beauty and Beast is, you know, a film is good when it makes you like really buy into a Stockholm syndrome relationship. <laughs> I don't want people to forget about that because it's crazy, but they do such an amazing job that you feel so happy at the end, you completely forget that's even an issue. It's, yeah, it's incredible. Yeah, I'm I'm happy for that to be the final word on uh, Beauty and the Beast. <laughs> so, um, before we uh, before we get on out of here, um, we of course want to say a huge thank you to our Patreon subscribers, and they are Chris Wilson, Let There Be Light Productions, Zoe Baines, Daryl Griffiths, Sam Luck, Orla Smith, Peter Hodgkins, Andy Meakin, Fabiana Rosas, Hamish Calvert, and Martin Richmond. A huge thank you to those guys um, for their support, and to all of our other Patreons as well. You can become a Patreon, uh, support this madness and all the other things that the team are doing. Um, and you can find out uh, the various levels. You can support our wild Disney conspiracy theories. <laughs> yes, please. And all of these insane sequels that we would love to get picked up by someone with more money than us. Um, <laughs> we'll make that a, a tier on our Patreon. Um, yes, you can <laughs> find out the different levels. 100000 a month. <laughs> the different levels you can give at that are considerably less than £100,000 a month. Um, on Jump Cut's website and uh, you can sign up there and find out all the cool perks uh, that you get Um, Barry this has been fantastic I've had a absolutely wonderful time talking about this film Um, I hope you have as well and um, good (laughs) okay (laughs) that's good to hear Um, do you want to tell people where they can find you on uh, Twitter and elsewhere I've had a much better time than Mrs. Potts thousands of unknown (laughs) Um, yes, you can find me on Letterboxd at B Levitt, and you can find me on Twitter at B Levitt ninety three. Yes, <laughs> just go to our Twitters now, and it'll be us just like rambling to no one about how Mrs. Potts is the real villain of the piece, <laughs> um, like the most evil. Yeah. Um, yeah, she'll be our number one uh, new favorite villain when we do our <laughs> ranking. <laughs> I really do love her, you guys, I swear. Oh boy, right, yes. You can find me, I'm at Sarah Buttery on Twitter and you can find all of us at Jumpcast underscore. You can check out all of our written reviews, features, interviews, news and more at jumpcutonline.co.uk and go straight to jumpcutonline.co.uk forward slash jumpcast to find out where you can find all of our podcast episodes. The next Jumpcast episode will be dropping on Monday and we'll be back with a brand new Disney episode next Friday. We'll see you then. Mm -hmm.